Here comes Billy Cundiff to tie this game and in all likelihood send it to overtime. The last two years, 16 of 16 in the fourth quarter on field goals. 32 yards to tie it. And the kick, look out, look out! It's no good, it's no good! You know what I love about doing this, Don? What's that? Is that each week we have a new opportunity to do the best show that we've ever done. <laughs> we do try. And you know, when I look back at last week's show, there's a lot of things in that show that I think are better than anything we've done before. Right. Like when I re-listened to the Phil Taylor interview, that really felt like one that if it wasn't our best, it was up there. Okay. It just felt right. It felt like it ran really well. But then when I listened to the show, there was other parts of it. Maybe it was too long. You know, maybe we pushed it with four guests. We had never had four guests on the show before. Maybe we should have split that into two separate shows. But regardless of what you think of last week's show, unless we lost you completely, <laughs> <laughs> you're back and you get to hear another chance for us to do the best show we've ever done. And... To be honest, and honesty is definitely something that we're very fond of here, we've already done the interviews for this show. Right. And based on what we've recorded in terms of interviews, I think that we have a chance to do the best show that we've ever done. Right, and we have a uh, a surprise guest. It was actually a surprise to me as of this morning that'll be on. And I think that's really, uh, when we started the podcast, the type of guest we like to get on here. I, I know it's mainly sports, but... He's the type of guest that kind of transcends sports and while still being sports related and makes it really like just a general interest show at times. Yeah, and this is the Sportscasters. It's season two, episode four, January 24th, 2012. Uh, My name is Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don. And uh, let's just let it out of the bag right here. Here's the guest for today. We have, first of all, we have one of the, if not the most accomplished sports writers who's ever been on the show in S.L. Price. He has been in the Best American Sports Writer Series six times. Yeah. You know, and when we had Wertheim on the first time, I remember being blown away that he'd been in the book three times. You know, and S.L. Price has been in double that. Yeah. And it blows my mind, and he's a super nice guy. You're going to love the interview we did with him earlier. Also on the show... A hockey Hall of Famer for his writing. Uh, Michael Farber, he is a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. You know, he's he's a special member. You know, uh, every Hall of Fame has this, you know, a contributor section. Right, right. And he's, uh, he's a member of that. So Michael Farber will join us. And as Don mentioned before, Duff McKagan. Duff McKagan, the bass player from Guns N' Roses and Velvet Revolver. And he's had his own band, Loaded. He's also, I mentioned it in the intro, he's kind of a renaissance man of the 21st century. He is into economics. He earned an economics degree once he sobered up and got clean. He went back to college, earned an economics degree. He writes a column for SeattleWeekly.com. He writes a sports column, a kind of a sports and music thing for ESPN.com. And I want to thank uh, Christy 
from ESPN PR, who's actually the one who set this interview up for us. So I want to thank her. Uh, and it's it's he's just written a book. He's a renaissance man. So Duff McKagan is going to join us today, and we're really looking forward to all that. A couple things before we get started, because we do have a lot to do. Um, we mentioned last week's podcast. It's definitely worth checking out. Uh, we had Kenny Albert, and I got some great feedback on the Kenny Albert interview. A lot of people seem to enjoy Kenny. Uh, we like Kenny. He's been on twice now. Really a really kind guy. And uh, that interview was, was really great. And I mentioned I loved the Phil Taylor interview. We also had Don Banks and Jim Trotter on for the second time each. So we enjoyed that. But you can find that on our website, www.sports-casters.com. Another thing that I tried for the first time last week, and I don't know if you noticed it or not, Don, but on our new Tumblr site, when I got home, I was kind of pumped up about the podcast, and I just sat down and did some writing, and I kind of gave some behind-the-scenes access to what the day was like. You know, and I wrote a little bit about the things that happened, you know, how the Kenny Albert interview got set up, how we, we reached out to Phil Taylor, you know, what we talked about with them before and after, and kind of just why we decided to order the interviews the way we did. And I'm going to keep going with that because I think, you know, a long time ago we did a blog that was about just – our day here right some pictures from behind the scenes we got a great feedback and i think people like to be a part of this and we want people to feel like they have some ownership of this show it's like dvd commentary right exactly so i'm going to keep doing that on our tumblr site and you can find that very easily it's uh the sportscasters.tumblr.com and of course if you're familiar with tumblr you know they don't use an e right so they're anti-e but we got a lot to do we got three things we got a big announcement for the book club. We are going to skip the top 10 this week, and instead, Don and I are going to do a mock draft uh, for the NFL, or excuse me, the NHL All Star game. Right. And we have our guest, Asel Price, Michael Farber, and Duff McKagan. Let's kick it off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll kick it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever! (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. Alright, my first bit of business, and probably the biggest story of the weekend, were a couple mistakes, or maybe more than a couple mistakes. Uh, Two pretty good games, maybe not as good as like uh, Saints 49ers the week before but still not bad games not quite epic but very good yeah, yeah. good games but they're going to go down as uh, games that are going to be remembered for mistakes more than anything uh, Kyle Williams fumbling two punts one to allow uh, the Giants back into the game and then one to allow the Giants to win the game yep. and 10 then, points Yeah, and then uh, Billy Condiff of course missing a kick and Lee Evans dropping what looked like maybe not the easiest touchdown ever, but what should have been a touchdown in the end zone. And, uh, yeah, it's it, it mars the games a little bit. And I, maybe I'm biased because one of the best Super Bowls ever played was the Bills and Giants, and that ended on a mistake. But I'd, I'd like to remember a game. It's hard to think back to those games now and think of like a really great play somebody made because at least it's not the first thing that's going to pop into your head about these games. It's going to be about Kyle Williams getting hit in the shin with a ball or Billy Condiff running out for that field goal and then kicking it horribly wide. 
Yeah, well, the first thing I want to say is I want to defend Scott Norwood. That was a 47-yard right, field goal. Right, right. People forget that. was the yeah. longest he tried all season on grass. It wasn't. It was no chip shot. Right. Billy Cundiff, he missed a chip shot. First of all, the ball was dead center, so he didn't have to worry about playing an angle at all. All he needed to do was get himself set, kick the ball through the upright. Now, the whole... The snap wasn't great. The holder did a really good job getting it down. He got the laces out and kind of just hooked it. Yep. One thing that I noticed, and me and you were talking about this off the air, he didn't get on the field. It didn't look like he was ready at all. There's been a little bit of controversy. If you recall, a few plays before that, Anquan Bolton fumbled the ball and it went out of bounds past the first down marker. Now, the rule is, and this is another thing, players don't know the rules as well as they should. Now, we've talked to Mike Pierre about this. We talked with uh, Don Banks last week about this. The rules are pretty much too complicated for really anyone to understand. <laughs> right. But this one is basic. If you fumble the ball ahead, out of bounds, it comes back to where, where you fumble it. Fumbled, it. Right. So there was a little bit of confusion on the Ravens' sidelines as to what down it was. Right. Okay, so apparently Billy Cundiff didn't know that it was fourth down and that beforehand the coaches were calling him on the sideline trying to get him to get ready to go out onto the field for the next play. He was, you know, over kicking into the net or whatever kickers do. Right. He got on the field really late. Now, at first, I thought that it was an error on Harbaugh's part for not calling a timeout. An NFL kicker, I can't remember which one, tweeted and said that if the kicker feels like he is not ready, it's his responsibility to call timeout. The Ravens did have a timeout, and in my opinion, Cundiff absolutely should have taken a timeout, taken a deep breath, and prepared to make the kick. Some people said, well, are you kind of icing yourself? No. The guy was sprinting onto the field before, <laughs> right. like while the line was ready to snap the ball. Yeah, and the highlight you heard at the beginning of the show, that highlight starts with him running onto the field, and it's about... 10 seconds before the ball has to be snapped. So he doesn't have much time to set. By the time he sets up, the ball is snapped. Right. He was not, you know, usually you see the kicker, he's kind of like waving his arms back and forth, and he's in his stance, right, and right. he's waiting Loosen for the ball. Up, yeah. You know, this wasn't the case. He got rushed out there. Now, Lee Evans, it got knocked out of his hand. It C did. Come on. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I've heard. You'd like him to hold on to it. You'd like him to, but. It wasn't a drop no, by any means. No, the guy made a play, and right. that's the thing. Sometimes we forget that there's other NFL players on the field, right? Right. right. You know, and, and, and it's not as much sometimes as you got beat as the other team beat you. Yep. You know what I mean? It's not that you beat yourself, but, you know, sometimes other players make plays. So I'm not going to kill Lee Evans. Williams, I got to kill. Yeah, especially for the, the, first, the one, first one. Why the didn't he go and recover it? What was he standing there for? Or run away. Didn't he know it hit him? Yeah, he must have. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if he thought. To me, it felt like everyone in the world knew that it hit him, apparently, right. but him. And great great job by Devin Thomas, of all people. And they did a good job of showing this on Fox, the hustle of him getting driven out of bounds and getting yep. back in and getting down the field and having the heads up to recover. He recovered both fumbles. 
Devin Thomas is a guy that you might remember was one of the three players that the Redskins picked in the second round a few years ago when they picked Fred Davis, Malcolm Kelly, and Devin Thomas. Oh, right, Devin right. Thomas was the first of those three. Didn't work out for him in Washington as it didn't work out for Malcolm Kelly. That's right. He got another chance in New York, made his way onto the team because of special teams, and ends up making two of the biggest plays in franchise history You know, to get them into the position. You know the Giants have been to five NFC Championship games? They've won them all. Wow. So, I got to kill Williams. There's been a report today that he injured his shoulder. But, you know what? If you're out there on the field and you're worried about your shoulder and ball security, make a fair catch. Right. They win that game. Especially on the second one. Well, the first one, just get out of the way. I mean, you don't have to catch. You don't have to touch that ball. Even if you don't call a fair catch there, it's not a live ball. Just get out of the way. Tough break. Yep. All right. My number one thing. Speaking of mistakes, Twitter had a really rough weekend this weekend, and I'm <laughs> going to tell you two reasons why. We're going to talk a little bit about Joe Paterno in a second, but there was a real rush on Saturday to announce this man's death. It seemed like everyone wanted to be the first one to be able to say. It, it came out sort of early in the day that he, he was, was in the hospital. potentially ill right. and gravely ill at that, and there was a... Penn State, some students, some kids who initially reported it. They, it was some publication that's involved in Penn State that initially reported his death mistakenly. But then CBS.com also reported it. Right. The kids acted like the professionals made a mistake, acknowledged their mistake, apologized to the family. I haven't heard much from CBS.com about their <laughs> error, you know. And then, if that wasn't enough, and you know, and that was just really an ugly side of Twitter, you know. But then, if that wasn't enough, really, I've heard people say Twitter is the best thing that's ever happened and the worst thing. And uh, Williams, who we talked about with the fumble, yeah, he's been receiving death, death threats. threats. Yep. Somebody said, "I hope Jim Harbaugh gives him the game ball and it explodes when he gets out in his car." It just yeah. really, really terrible stuff, and. It just makes me cringe as a fan. The way that people think that they can hide behind what is the anonymity of Twitter at yeah. times is just really disgusting. But when I say that, there's also the good side of Twitter. People like Patrick Willis have taken to Twitter and supported Williams, said, you know, you're one of the reasons we got there. We all make mistakes. Keep your head up, bud. It seems right. like Ray teammates. Rice was real good about Condiff on Facebook, I think. But You know, teammates are always there to – to support teammates because they know that it could have been them. Right, for sure. You know what I mean? Even the best players have made bad plays. Tom Brady didn't play exactly like a pro bowler. No, not at all. You know, and if if Cundiff makes that kick and Baltimore goes on to win that game, the big story this week is Joe Flacco outplayed Tom Brady Brady in a championship game in New England. Outgained him by like 80 yards or something. So I think players are good to know that it could have been them and they, they can sympathize. Fans... Just, you got to keep it into perspective. I love sports as much as anybody, but anyone who listens to the show last week knows there's got to be some maturity to the level of what kind of fan you are. And I've learned that over the years, you know what I mean? And I didn't take the Saints loss, maybe the way I would have taken it before. I I think when I talked about last week, I don't remember blaming a single player directly. I think maybe I got on Greg Williams a little bit. Yeah, maybe a little bit. You know, but other than that, it was just, right. to me, it was like, you know, it was an unbelievable game. And 
you know, they just made the last great play. But I was disappointed with some of the things I've seen on Twitter this weekend. I still love it. still love Twitter. But um, it disappointed me a bit. Like you said, uh, Twitter can be the best and worst thing ever. Sports fans fall in that category, too. They can be some of the greatest people and some of the most disgusting at times. My second thing this week, the NFL has always kind of patted itself on the back and grown through this perceived notion of parody. And uh, it, it really just doesn't seem to be true. Maybe more so in the NFC. But it, what it seems like is parody will will get you so far and then eventually you'll lose. Uh, and even more importantly than that is it's it's all about quarterbacks. I know people describe it as a quarterback league, but if you really sit down and, and look at it, it's it's not just a quarterback league. It's a great quarterback league. If you don't have a very good to great quarterback you're not going to win, which makes me worried about the Bills getting Ryan Fitzpatrick, who is a nice story, but he's not great. He's only okay. The last 10 Super Bowls, the quarterbacks that won those Super Bowls were Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, Big Ben, Eli Manning, Peyton Manning, Big Ben again, Brady, Brady, and Trent Dilfer is the one exception. Uh, and so, he had the, arguably the greatest defense of all time. Right. With the 85 Bears. Those are usually the two that you hear mentioned. Right. And other than that game, you have the Baltimore Super Bowl, which, again, was probably more about defense. But then you have to go all the way back to the Bills versus Washington to find a Super Bowl that was won by and not by a quarterback that wasn't an all-time Mark great. Mark Rippon. Mark Rippon. Right. The quarterbacks that won in between were Kurt Warner, John Elway, Brett Favre, Troy Aikman, and Steve Young. You have to... Kerry J. Burns is going to bring up later on about how the Bills' problem is that they've they've have been mismanaged for a couple decades, maybe. Uh, they just you need a quarterback. You need an elite quarterback in this league. Even the losing teams, some of the losing quarterbacks, Eli Manning, Big Ben, Peyton, Kurt Warner, Tom Brady, Rex Grossman, I guess, goes against it, and Hasselback and McNabb, Delome, Gannon. But those were all the losing guys. Sometimes you can have a great quarterback and still lose. Uh, you you have to Super Bowl winners are Hall of Famers typically. Yeah, the only two time Super Bowl winner who's eligible for the Hall of Fame that isn't in it is Ken Stabler. And he's often a name that you hear as one of the biggest Hall of Fame snubs of all time. Right, he's on the cusp. And he's right the there. kind of a guy that maybe someday could get in with a veterans committee type of thing. So I think everything you're saying is being is completely backed up by fact. Right. And it it, it just makes you think you hear all this stuff about uh Guys like Bill Belichick being brilliant, and it, it almost feels like you don't even need a coach or general manager. You just have to find that Hall of Fame quarterback. Well, maybe the most brilliant thing Bill Belichick ever did was pick Tom Brady in the and sixth get round. Get rid of Brady, uh, right? You know, and 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 stick with Brady when Bledsoe, Bledsoe got healthy right. at the end of that year. And if you remember, before the first Super Bowl, they the, the one against the Rams, Bledsoe actually played most of the AFC Championship game against the Steelers. And there was a lot of talk, the big story going into that Super Bowl is would they stick with Bledsoe or would they go right, back to right. Brady? And Belichick went back to Brady. But, you know. Yeah, so like I was saying, though, it's a quarterback league, but that's, that's almost an understatement. It's, it's, a, it's an elite quarterback league. And that's why, even before rookie salary cap and things like that, just about any time anyone has the first overall pick, they try it's to draft the next great quarterback. Yep. Even if it's going to cost them $60 million. And great quarterbacks don't move teams. The one exception is Drew Brees. Uh, other than that, 
once you find this great quarterback, they don't usually move teams and unless the, someone like Brett Favre. And the reason that Drew Brees moved teams was because they you thought they had the next great right. quarterback in Phillip Rivers, and Drew Brees had a car- catastrophic injury. You almost can't blame the Chargers because they had drafted a quarterback that they thought that could be their future, and Brees yep. had just had a catastrophic injury and was a free agent, by the way. So, so I guess it's a long way of saying when the Bills go into the draft – I know they need a defensive end. I know they need linebackers. Take the best quarterback. Uh, you can't win without him. All right, my number two thing. Uh, the Boston Bruins went to the White House yesterday to meet the president. And uh, Tim Thomas stiffed. Didn't show up. Didn't, uh, didn't make the trip. And I've heard a lot of different things about this. I've heard people say that, you know, it's the United States and the White House stands for Tim Thomas's. Uh, ability to miss skip it right freedom of speech yeah freedom of expression type thing to me it's just it's disgusting to me it's disrespectful you know okay i lean more right than left on some things socially i'm pretty moderate i don't get very passionate about things like gay marriage to me go ahead and get married you know so i'm not that kind of right I think I'm more right when it comes to things like economics. And, right, uh, right. Yeah, and maybe my opinions on uh, t- defense and things like that. But I respect what is the presidency of the United States. To me, no matter who the sitting president is, if I was ever invited to the White House, it'd just be an unbelievable honor Yeah, to be able to be there on the lawn of the White House with the president and this statement that he made was just so bizarre. Something about how it's it's not partisan, but, you know, government is screwing up the country. It's like, come on. Right. You I know? mean, you're, you were invited there to shake hands. You weren't invited there to talk foreign policy. And, and what, did he, what did he accomplish by not going? Yeah, he... He didn't accomplish anything. It's one of those things where I respect his right to do that but it probably it's not going to bode well for him one way or another it might not have been well thought out like you said it just kind of came out as a little bit strange you want to hear his his statement part of it says i believe the federal government has grown out of control threatening the rights liberties and property of the people uh right he continues this is being done at the executive legislative and judicial level this is in direct opposition to the constitution and founding fathers vision for the federal government because i believe this today i exercise my right as a free citizen and did not visit the white house this was not about politics or party as in my opinion both parties are responsible for the situation we are in as a country this was a choice i had to make as an individual this is the only public statement i will make on this topic I like Tim Thomas a lot, uh, which is saying a lot because it's probably one of the teams I like the least in the league as a Sabres fan. It's just an odd way to make a stand. Um, He's inviting you into his home, kind of. And I know it's a strange tradition maybe to have a sports team go to the White House, but just take it as an honor. And, Uh, you know, whatever you think about Barack Obama's politics, it's pretty tough to argue that he seems like a pretty cool guy. Right, you know yeah, I, I guess mean, he like, kind of he kind of joked about their playoff beards, and he yeah, and more than maybe any president in the last well, you know, Clinton was this way too. 
maybe not the bushes, but they're just they come off as a guy that if you met him in a bar and you, you sat next to him and had a beer, you you could just kind of have a good time. And nothing about this trip yesterday was political. You know what I mean? It was no, not a at tradition. All. Right. It was about tradition and the tradition of the standing president congratulating the champion of the National Hockey League, the champion of the National Football League, the champion of the NBA. They do this. And the Boston Bruins said that everyone has their own opinions and political beliefs, and he chose not to join us. Speaking of Thomas, this is Cam Neely, the president of the Bruins. Uh, he said that we certainly would like to have him come and join us, but that's his choice. Obviously, it's not a choice that most of the guys, as in every other guy but him, Right. All the guys came except for Tim. That's his decision and his choice. So I'm they, disappointed. They were, they were embarrassed. I, I think the Bruins were embarrassed yep. by it. And uh, and I'm embarrassed. I'm disappointed. I wish that uh, I wish he would have made it. Wish he would have put aside whatever that was. Like you said, more said than anything, it's just odd. It, it's just a strange, strange time to take that stand. And maybe if nothing else, it's a explanation point on what is the fact that goalies are just a different, different breed. <laughs> They sure are. All right, my last point this week. Uh, the All-Star Game for the NHL and the Pro Bowl for the football are coming up. And the All-Star Game is going to be again without Sidney Crosby and this year without Alexander Ovechkin. That's tough. Uh, the NHL uses the All-Star Game basically as a commercial for the league. Crosby's hurt, and not just hurt, but it's a concussion, which is kind of like the black eye on the league, so to speak. And... Ovechkin, while I don't think this is an official, official statement, he says he's not going to be there. Maybe the team will try to change his mind. Maybe the league will try to change his mind. But he did receive a three-game suspension for a hit in the Penguins game uh, this past Sunday, I believe. And uh, he su- it kind of feels like he's whining. He's like, well, it wouldn't be right if I'm suspended to be at the All-Star. And originally... He apparently had a vacation planned. Right. Um, He didn't expect to be voted to the All-Star game because of his play this year, which started off really cold. He's been better lately. Yep. Um, But then he had to change his plans, and now it sounds like he's going to go back on vacation. You know, this game, as you said, it's for the fans. It's about stars. We're going to talk to Michael Farber about it. And, you know, what the NHL has done is they've tried a bunch of different things. The fantasy draft on and I are going to do a mock one later in the show. Is they've tried to they've tried to make these this a, a great event for the fans and fun for the fans. And I think they've succeeded actually. I mean, I know everyone doesn't love it because it's not real hockey and it's really not. It's it's terrible hockey. It's shitty, right? It's a bad game of pickup. Right. But I mean, that's what the basketball one is too. Last year's basketball All-Star game turned into a slam dunk contest. They basically got out of the way and let each other dunk back and forth on each other. And you know, that's what, what the fans want to see maybe. Average average Joe fan. You know what I was thinking about Crosby? Is he and I don't know. I'm not in his head and I'm not like I'm not going to criticize him in any way, but could he really not have, you know, maybe joined everyone, stopped by, and maybe tried the accuracy competition? Or yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, is he so sick that he can't? Because if it's if if it's the case, wow, I'm really nervous about him. I mean, if but is it really he couldn't stop by, be a part of the festivities? You know, maybe do something on the ice with the skills competition. If he could. And he did. It would make what Ovechkin's doing look even worse. Uh, I mean, not that that's a stretch. Ovechkin was one of my favorite players when he came into the league, but uh, 
He's kind of showing a little bit of a weird side, too. And Ovechkin's got to find something that he seems to have lost the last maybe calendar so, year. Yeah, yeah. There's something about his game that it just isn't the same. Right, and, and they tried I, firing the coach. I wonder if part of it is not having Sid there. It seemed like the Sid-Ovechkin rivalry was something great, and it yeah. seemed like maybe both guys pushed each other. I could be way off there. I'm not going to try to say that that's definitely the case, but it just seems like something is missing from Sid. All right, last thing for today. Uh, one guy that's never been on this show and I've never even thought about reaching out to is Skip Bayless. <laughs> uh, Skip Bayless is on ESPN's first take, and I'm not sure. You know, there's a lot of people that will describe as, you know, some people love him, some people hate him. Is there anyone out there left that loves Skip Bayless? You know what? If you ever watch Twitter trends, like while you're on your app on your phone or whatever, you can look at the trends. One way or another, Skip Bayless always ends up trending. And I'm assuming it's usually for negative things. It's venom. It's people yeah. have a passionate despise of this guy. And ESPN, to their credit, I mean, they put him out there and uh, apparently people watch it. I, I don't know. I, I couldn't listen to a word the guy says. Anyway, yesterday, <laughs> Terrell Suggs... Uh, yeah was nice enough to be on the show and, and Don is the clip. Those last two plays, it happened so fast. Like, boom, he dropped now, the ball. Now, wait a second. Are, are you saying you got some, or, or the Patriots got some home cooking in that they deceived you on the scoreboard by putting the wrong down up there? Nah, I'm not saying that. And Skip, stop that. I know what you're well, doing. That's what you just said. There was no, some confusion this, this, about you, what down you know, it was? You know what I'm talking about with the confusion. When Anquan Bolden bumbled the ball out of bounds, yeah. we thought, you know, he bumbled it past the first down marker. We thought we had a first down, which we didn't. But, you know, we raised two different things. No, I'm not saying that. So, Skip, once again, stop it. Be an analyst. Don't be a douchebag. You know what I mean. All <laughs> <laughs> right, T-Sizzle. <laughs> so, sorry about that clip, uh. That's just the way it is. It's, I, everywhere I've heard it, it's that way. Okay. Because I think uh, it's a. I don't think ESPN's made it readily available. So it's somebody so like someone had a breathing the TV. next to the TV. Right, yeah. someone had to tape the TV there. Yeah, so the clip isn't the best quality, but you get the idea. And I, I just got to say, way to go, T-Sizzle, because he said be an analyst. He said be a to uh, Skip Bayless what we've all wanted to say. And if you want to hear more about this story, you can go check out our friends over at sportsgrid.com. They have a nice little write-up about it, and they also have the clip, which you can you can check out. So, uh Yes, that's three things for today. One last thing we wanted to do. We didn't do it as a specific part of three things, and I did mention it kind of earlier with my first thing. But it's kind of a strange thing to handle, and we've yeah, kind of talked about it. It's as awkward. Far as, uh, and it's difficult. But Nansky having to do it. But uh, Joe Paterno, as many of you know, passed away at the age of eighty-five, I believe, um, eighty-five days or so after he coached his last. Uh, game for the Penn State Nittany Lions and you can say what you want about the controversy at Penn State but this is obviously a guy who has touched a lot of lives and he's made a lot of people who make America what it is today better he's coached a lot of kids in the years that he's been a part of Penn State and not all of them have been NFL players but many of them have come through his program and turned out to be uh, a better part of society than maybe they would have had they not met Joe Paterno. And, you know, Joe Paterno is almost a guy that I never heard a bad word about until 
Sandusky <laughs> and just, this scandal just came a really, about. Really bad. You know, word. so he made a really, really bad decision, or he made a mistake when it came to maybe going as far as he could have when it right. comes to revealing what he knew about Sandusky. I would hate to be in his shoes, and I'm not going to judge him on that. We're going to learn more about it, I'm sure, when we do eventually read Joe Piznanski's book. And I'm going to wait until then to pass judgment. I'm going to wait until this case plays out. In the meantime, Don and I just want to say God bless Joe Paterno. God bless his family. And, uh, you know, he's going to be missed. And uh, we're, uh, we were sorry to hear about his passing. So um, Godspeed, and uh, we will be right back with S.L. Price from Sports Illustrated. Our next guest is from Stamford, Connecticut, and is a graduate of the University of North Carolina. As a student at North Carolina, he covered the 1983 Tar Heels basketball team that featured Michael Jordan. After college, he spent time working at the Sacramento Bee as an NBA beat writer and for the Miami Herald as a columnist and feature writer. In 1994, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer. He has received multiple honors for his journalism, including two Associated Press Sports Editors Awards, two National Headliner Awards, and awards from the National Association of Black Journalists and the Women's Sports Foundation. His work has appeared in the Best American Sports Writing Series an unbelievable seven times. He has authored three books, including his 2009 book, Heart of the Game, Life, Death, and Mercy in Minor League America. He just might be the most accomplished guest who has ever appeared on our show. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great S.L. Price. How are you doing today, Mr. Price? Good, thank you. Uh, Stephen, just to let you know, I believe it's six times in uh, Best American Sports Writing. So. Well, uh, you know... It was six times, but you're in 2011. So doesn't that make it seven? I think that's the, I think that's the sixth time, isn't it? I, I believe that. You know. Well, <laughs> according, <laughs> according to, I, according to your bio, back, he is he is now. Doesn't it say now he has appeared now in, six times in, in Best Americans Sports? Right? Well, here's the thing in your bio on SI, which right. was updated in 2010. It said six times. Yeah. So I assume that your 2011th appearance made it seven. No, no, no. Either I, way, I, it's incredible. No, no, no. I appreciate it. I'm just letting yeah. you know that that. Uh, uh, and, and again, we don't. This doesn't need to be on the air. I'm just letting you know, essentially, that that I updated it once I was notified that I was going to be in there. I gotcha. Okay. So it is six. So, so I, I just don't want to, you know, <laughs> I don't want to give you false advertising there. So I gotcha. So, so tinker with that if you want, and, we, and off we go. So okay. We, you know. Well, welcome to the show. We really appreciate appreciate you doing this. Um, as I mentioned to Phil Taylor last week, you know, we spent the first season kind of shocking ourselves with the people that were willing to come on. I think at the, the sixth show, Joe Poznanski agreed to come on. So in between the first and second season, we agreed that we wouldn't, we wouldn't let anything stop us from asking somebody. And we finally, I finally got the guts to ask someone who's appeared six times in the Best American Sports Writing Series. You know, we, we've studied that, those books, and we've had Glenn Stout on the show and Jane Levy, who, who edited the last book on the show. And, you know, it, to us, it's just incredible to think that you've been in it so many times. And I wonder, have you ever considered editing the book? Have you ever been asked? Is it anything you'd like to do in the future? Uh, you know, I've, I've never been asked 
and I've uh, it would be a daunting uh, task, really, because because there's to tell you the truth. I mean, you know, people always talk about the death of sports writing and the, you know uh, how the internet is is killing long form and so on and so forth. That that's changed a little bit in the last two years or so. But all in all, I I think the the amount of, of great writing out there is 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 astonishing, and it, it would be really difficult to to winnow it down. Um, so, you know, I. I, I Sure, I'd, I'd, it'd be nice to be asked, but I'm, but you know, there are a lot of people ahead of me who who are probably more accomplished and and and, and ready to do that than than I would be. Well, let's get into a little little bit. You talk about long form, and that's something that you certainly are are incredible at. And I, you know, I wonder I, when I was preparing for the interview, you know, I'd read, oh, here's a story on Bobby Orr, oh, here's a story on Michael Vick, you know, here's a story on, you know, an Indian tribe that I, you know, and I just wonder like. You're sitting at your desk and you're getting ready. Where do these stories come from? And I hope I'm not asking for like the recipe to Coke, but I just wonder, like, you know, someone who writes these incredible features, you know, how how do you how do you prepare to do one, and and what what interests SL Price? Well, um, look, uh, working for Sports Illustrated, you know, they're incredible. They have a great appreciation for these kinds of stories still. Even in in the you know face of a lot of prevailing winds, where it's all about take and opinion, um, Sports Illustrated still values depth and perspective, and and letting writers figure things out in public. Um, I would say probably half my stories uh, begin as ideas from Sports Illustrated, and half begin as ideas from me. Um, I'll tell you the the one place they don't begin is just sitting at your desk. I mean, I I for example, I'll give. Um, one of my stories that appeared, I think, in, in Best American Sports Writing was, was a, a story I did on Pancho Gonzalez. Well, I, I make a point. I cover tennis uh, for SI. I'll do two slams a year and, 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 and usually a, a feature um, on tennis. And, um, you know, one of the great things about doing that, people say, well, why, why do you still do tennis? One is that I, is that I, love, I love the game. It also um, gets me out there. It gets me out talking to people. Uh, exchanging ideas and in interviewing, you know, over like uh, about a year and a half period, it just, you know, Pontius Gonzalez, who couldn't be more dead, um, you know, his name kept coming up from people as just this incredible figure um, who, uh, you know, was, you know, just had this incredible presence on the on the tour and he'd only won two slams. And this was at a time when Sampras and, and Federer, you know, had come up and, you know, all these guys were amassing these, these incredible numbers of grand slams and, and Pontius had only won two. Now, I knew sort of the bare outlines of a story, but, you know, I started delving into it, and what was most fascinating is that people reacted to him with either love or hate as if he was alive, you know, you know, as if their experiences with him had happened the day before, as opposed to the fact that he'd been dead for, for you know, well over a decade at the time. And I, I thought anybody who has that kind of presence, an electric sort of... Um, impact over time, uh, even after, well after he's dead, is somebody interesting to me. And then, of course, at the same time, you know, at some point, it was made clear to me, it was, you know, Pancho married Agassiz's sister. And I thought, well, there's, a, there's an absolute up-to-date reference, meaning, meaning these are, you know, not only is, not only is Pancho an incredible, vital figure from the past, but, but 
he, he's, he has a link to someone who's, who's alive and in everybody's mind right now, Andre Agassi. And this was, like I said, this was a few years back before Agassi retired, of course. And so I went and said to SI, I got to do a story on this thing. This is just unbelievable. And, and SI has a, a great tradition of doing pieces on historical figures along the way, not just, you know, hey, we've got to stay up to date with whoever's on top now. And, you know, the one thing about SI, if you're passionate about something, you can make the case, they love it. And they'll say to you, hey, are, are you interested in doing this story? And, and, if, and if you don't come back to them with the real passion for it, they, they don't mind. They're like, okay, well, we'll get somebody who really cares about it. And it's not, that's right. not a diss. It's just they, 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 they ask you if you want to do a story. They don't demand that you do a story. And so um, gauging your interest first because the passionate writer is going to write the better story. It's just the way it is. The Iroquois Indian story, Iroquois lacrosse story is the same thing. I, I you know, tripped across the idea that, that Iroquois lacrosse and the Iroquois competed as a separate nation against the, the U.S. and, um, you know, England or Australia and whoever else plays lacrosse, and it's the only uh, Native American, yeah, exactly, Canada, yeah. the only Native American tribe to do so. They, they basically are essentially, you know, compete as their own nation and are recognized as such. And I thought, what? And as soon as you, I go, what? You know there's a story there. And right. so... So then I pitched it to SI, and I said, and I pitched it like two years in advance. I said, look, when and if the Iroquois go to the World Cup, I want to do a story going into it. So you know, waited, bided our time. They they were moving around, and and eventually got there. And I said, yes, I remember this. And I put it in my hand. I really want to do the story. And they said, great. So, um, and then lastly, and I know this is a long-winded answer, but Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. I did a story on that the town last January, mm-hmm. and that came about because an editor at SI, Mark Mravick, his parents went to Aliquippa High School. And it was in his mind, and he sort of just sent me an email and said, hey, you know, this is this town that is sort of falling on hard times, and all these great players came out of it. Uh, would you be interested in doing it? And to tell you the truth, he didn't tell me that his parents had gone there. I didn't know this until much later. Uh, and then I went to Aliquippa. I said, yeah, let me take a look around. And, and, and it was, you know, this extraordinary story where nobody else is there, meaning no other journalist, no other media, and incredible access and, and fascinating figures, uh, you know, people and, and stories to tell. So, you know, it was... It was like a playground. It was, it was, I couldn't have asked for a better story to work on and, and more passionate and interesting and, and generous people to deal with. You know, it's amazing that you bring that up because of all the stuff that I had read, that was one that I looked back at and said, oh, he wrote that one? Because that's a story that when it came out, I was very, very interested in because one of my best friends is from El Equipa. He actually went to Hope El uh, the other high school, he didn't go to Alabama yeah. High School, but right. you know. So as soon as that came out, I let him know about it, and I remember there was a video piece that was on uh, SI.com that kind of went with it too, and I loved that story. And when I was preparing for the interview, that was one I had planned to ask you about, just because um, it was it was such a it's it was so it was kind of ironic because that was one that I I very very clearly remembered, and um, you know it's interesting when there's a group of people who you know, from one area and all seem to succeed, you know, like in Buffalo, we have a neighborhood called South Buffalo and Patrick Kane and uh, uh, Tim Kennedy, who plays for the Florida Panthers and um, a girls hockey player. They all like grew up there around the same time. And I think um, I want to, I want to say it was, it was uh worth time also maybe wrote something that was in uh, the best American sports writer series that was about, uh, athletes who all came from the Virginia baseball. It's either Wertheim or Jenkins. 
Right. Uh, but uh, I think that was Lee Jenkins. Yeah, it was a yeah. wonderful story. Yeah. Yeah. So that that always that always fascinates me when people from this one area. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Al Quipper for a second. When you finish that story, or when you finish any story, maybe, and you get to the end and you get ready to turn it in, how often do you feel like, yeah, this 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 is it. This is one that could be a best American sports writing, or this could be one that you know we could win an award for. Do you ever get that feeling, or are you always surprised? Well, or? no, you know, look, here, here's the thing. If you, my, my, a couple things. Alan Quipple was the longest story I've ever written, and that was because it deserved to be in the sense that everybody's story was extraordinary. I mean, uh, I, I, I was so into and I and I will tell you, I'm now writing a book about Alan Quipple. Wow. And, and, and it's a far deeper and more, more compelling story than, than the one I even wrote for SI. And, and I did like that story. But I'll tell you, if you write for awards, if you write to be recognized, um, you're not only doing yourself a disservice, you're probably going to end up um, writing a bad story because you're not writing uh, for the organic sort of demands of the story. You're writing for some external sort of you know, recognition or whatever. I, I, nobody is, if you're any kind of writer, you're your, you're your worst critic. Look, I know all the holes. And when I usually when I end a story, I feel, well, it didn't match up to what I thought it was in my head. I mean, in your head, it's all perfect. It all lines up. But then when you have to actually write the thing, you know, all your, all your imperfections as a writer, all your, uh, you know, weaknesses uh, are going to show themselves in one way or another. And uh, I usually end up dissatisfied and, and it, at least for, it, until time has passed, I don't really have a good sense of a story that I write. I can't read a story that I've written. First of all, I've read it so much by the time I file it that I, I, I can't, and I'm so emotionally invested in it that I can't possibly judge whether it's any good or not. I, I really can't. There are stories that I've written where I thought, oh man, I think I, I think I got that one. I think I nailed that one. And then years later, I'll trip over it and I can't believe how bad it is. And then vice versa. There are times when I've written a story and I thought, ah, I just blew it. And I just, I just, there's, I just didn't achieve what I wanted to get there. And then I'll read, I'm like, wow, that, that really wasn't that bad. So look, I mean, there's the best I can hope for is this. It, I, I love a good kicker of a story, you know, the end. And if, if I somehow trip upon a kicker somewhere in the reporting of my story, where I know where the story's going to go long before I sit down to write it, it's one of the great things because then you, you know, the kicker's the funnel that everything leads to. And um, essentially, you know, you, you can write knowing where you're going to go the whole time, and everything sort of, every paragraph, every word, every sentence is, is, uh, is a signpost leading you to that final ring of the bell. And, um, uh, you know, I did a story on Mike Coolbaugh, who um, the first base coach, um, who was killed by a foul ball. Yep. And and I knew fairly early on what my kicker was going to be. And and so when I wrote that story at the end, I felt it was organically whole. I I felt like I had accomplished what was in my head. But I had no idea, and it got a great response. But you know, I didn't know if anybody would respond to it. I didn't know that people would like a pro was about an obscure baseball player, you know, and, and, and the story had been told really well by writers at the time when, when the accident had happened. Um, you know, I just, I just hoped that, that basically I could, <laughs> I could escape from the process 
feeling like I had done justice to the material. That's, that's really all you can hope for, and really the only way you should be writing. I mean, if you're thinking about anything else, um, you're going to get in trouble. Do you have a favorite? A favorite story I've written? Yeah. I mean, they're all... <laughs> they're all part and parcel of, of where I was at a certain point in time in my life or, or, or there's certain adventures I was on or, or, or it took me through a certain um, emotional journey for myself, much less the story, the dictates of the story itself. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, one of, one of my favorite stories was I did a story back in the 90s about all these Scrabble players um, trying to, uh, uh, working in Washington, Washington Square Park in New York and going to a $50,000 Scrabble, National Scrabble Tournament in, in, um, in Las Vegas. And I love that story. And it was completely minor because I love subculture stories. I love, I love the uh, uh, stories where sports sort of gives you a window upon an entire world and a way of thinking. And, you know, to me, I, you know, the, this whole debate on, you know, uh, is golf a sport? Is, you know, this a sport? Is, is, uh, is curling a sport is nonsense to me. I'm interested in general, just in what are people passionate about. And as long as I, uh, and people were so as passionate about Scrabble as, you know, Tom Brady and, and, and the Patriots are about football. And when people pour themselves into something like that, they're honest. Um, they, their passion doesn't allow them to lie usually as much or to be as protective of themselves and they reveal themselves. So, I mean, I, I I've had a lot of strange journeys, in Pakistan and Cuba, um, and and at certain points in time, those were my favorite stories. But but it's it, it changes as I change and and as my experiences change. You mentioned earlier about how much journalism has changed, about how uh, the long the internet has kind of stopped long form a little bit. But we've seen a resurgence. Uh, Grantland comes to mind as something that focuses on long uh, long form, and of course, Sports Illustrated is is still. You know, you can still count on it every Thursday to have some nice long articles that you can really sink your teeth into. And I wonder, as a writer, someone who's uh, been in the game for a long time, what 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 things about the technology that are available, things like the iPad and how Sports Illustrated is now available on the iPad or being able to maybe something doesn't fit in the magazine, but you can throw it on the website. What what kind of technology? Do you do you like? Do you think it helps you as a writer? And which ones? I know you're not on Twitter, so that's obviously obviously right. something you've stayed away for. Uh, what do you like? What do you don't like? And and maybe why? Well, I mean, I'll just let's just start with the internet. I mean, early on, you know, Sports Illustrated. I got there in '94, and you'd go to a tournament like the Olympics or or or, or a Grand Slam tournament or any kind of event over time, and, you know, I would be report. I mean, my job, my whole training is as a reporter. I want to push the story forward. I want to make it, I want to tell you something you don't know. So that means I'm talking to everybody all the time as much as possible. I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing people. I'm taping interviews. I'm sitting down. I'm grinding through them, the whole thing. And in the old days of SI, you know, you'd lose almost everything because, for example, in a Grand Slam, it almost always comes down to the to the winners. You know, you're not really writing about what happened in the first week or, or even on the Thursday before the Sunday final. And so all that stuff would be in my notebook or in my tape recorder. I'd never see the light of day. So now, and, then, and the same thing would happen at the Olympics. I mean, the Olympics was, you know, and, and or the World Cup. I mean, you'd go to these events and then, and then you know, it would come down to, you know, a header by somebody and, and you'd write, you know, almost all your story on that. 
and lose everything. Well, the Internet allowed us to write, uh, like if you got something, bam, throw, throw it up on the web now. I mean, for example, I, when John McEnroe became Davis Cup coach, I, I, I found out about it, and I, I had the story. But um, I remember I was holding on to it and thinking, you know, we're, we're never, you know, this is Saturday. The magazine doesn't come out until Thursday. Someone's surely going to break that news before the magazine does. And I, I called up and I said, look, you guys should, because that was at the time when, when we had CNNSI and we were tied in with them. We still are, but, but it was a little tighter then. I said, look, you should throw this up on the crawl that we're reporting that McEnroe is, is David, next Davis Cup coach. And, um, and so and, and there used to be a thought of, well, you're undermining the magazine somehow. But, um, but that changed, you know, and we did that. It didn't have anything to do with undermining the magazine. And, and, uh, and we were first, and we could claim credit for being first. And that, of course, um, mattered, you know. So, so I, I found the Internet to be an incredible plus in that way. Um, and then, at the same time, though, you know, I mean, and this is a more general thing than it is to SI or to me. I mean, we've seen, I think, in, in great to a great extent, the end of the sports column. Because it used to be you had this general sports column every town. You had a sports columnist or two or three. And um, they were the voices of the city, or at least to, to give you a take, uh, either funny or whatever, um, that, you know, obviously was, was important. George Vesey, uh, Lee Montville, um, you know, list is endless. You know, we, all, we all know what I'm talking about here. So, right. Joe Posnanski in Kansas City, the Chicago School, uh, Mike Downey in L.A., uh, Scott Osler. And, but now everybody's got an opinion and, 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 and an avenue to, to express it. So it has completely devalued the sports column in America. And we're, to the extent that the New York Times is, is almost phasing it out entirely. I mean, they're, 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 they're more and more of their columnists are reporters or experts on the sport, which is not a bad move. It's a smart move. It's just a change in our culture. Um, because everybody's got a belly button, everybody's got an opinion. Um, you know, the whole idea of take an opinion, I think, has been devalued. At the same time, I think, you know, long form kind of wandered a little bit, and people weren't sure of its value on the Internet. I, obviously, no one wants to sit and stare at the screen for 10 pages. But, um, you know, ESPN's probably has been a real pioneer in long form on the web. They, they've done a wonderful job of it. Um, uh, for a while now, and um, at the same time, I, I think that that with the devaluing of take, I mean, the fact is that anybody can have an opinion. Um, at the same time, to have somebody go out and deeply report a story and give you a perspective on something you thought you knew, um, I think it actually gained in value because because it's so different now than what is offered, you know, on a daily basis on the web, and so. You know, eventually people get sick of everybody railing at them, and they want they want to sit back and get a little perspective and depth on something they thought they knew or didn't know at all, and but didn't realize they were interested until they started reading it. So, so yes, it's it's actually come around, and I will tell you that I was just talking to another writer at SI today. The attitude at SI, I think, has changed. It's just a, something I've sensed in the air. I mean, five, six years ago, with the web and ESPN's overwhelming presence. Look, we're SI is not TV, and we're not the we're not the web. We're a weekly magazine, and uh, I think there was a real I don't know if panic's the right word, but certainly a loss of identity, or at least a searching for identity of you know who are we in this new world, and the arrival of the iPad, which which um, which the uh, SI has really pioneered sort of the 
the the use and 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 possibilities of magazines on the iPad, um, you know, led by Terry McDonald. Um, I, I, there's a there's a definite spring in the step at SI where where they feel like you know the iPad is is somewhere where the greatness of the magazine form is only enhanced, uh, you know, with with you know video links and everything else. I mean that you know look that that video piece that ran with my uh, my Alaquipa piece yep. was was astonishingly. Uh, I mean I I was so blown away by the work those guys did. Um, I, really, it was it was just beautiful, beautiful piece of work. And you know, along with that, you know, obviously, you know, you can link, you know, to if you want, you know, certain stories that they. they I think they did an, They might have done an interview with me about Aliquippa, but certainly when I did my Calipari story, I did an iPad interview about the uh, um, Calipari story when I did it. But I mean, you know, the possibilities are endless. You know, if I mention Mike Ditka, you can, you know, reference, you know, certain stories about Mike Ditka. You know, there's links to that. I mean, that's invaluable. And and the one thing that SI sort of, I don't know, for a long time, look, we we have this archive of incredible stories by incredible writers, and that was sort of walled off from people. And that is who we are. That's the DNA of who SI is. And 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 that's become more and more available on the web and through the iPad. And and I I think that's all to the good. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's a tough time to ask this question because they've yeah. had an it's had an absolutely undefensible weekend. But why not Twitter? You talking to, you talking to me about yeah, why, 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 you, aren't yeah. I, why aren't I on Twitter? Yeah. Well, two things. One is, look, I'm a reporter who's going who's off doing stories in a competitive environment. I don't want anybody to know what I'm working on. Right. Secondly, so I'm not going to tweet. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to tweet about that. Um, I don't really care what I think. Meaning, I mean, obviously, I have, I have strong opinions on things, but I, 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 I just fail to see the value of 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 what I might think to anybody else. <laughs> Whereas, if someone's doing a beat or someone's at a um, at an event, I do see the value. It's not like I don't see the value of of Twitter. I don't see the value of me on Twitter. And and thirdly, I'm juggling like you know five different things right now. <laughs> and I, I, I just don't. So I don't see the value of it. So I don't. So I think it, it would be a waste of my time. And to tell you the truth, I, I think it would be a waste of people to follow me on Twitter. So I, I think I would have like you know, twenty eight Twitter followers, and then I'd be sitting around, you know, tweeting all day, things that I think are sort of valueless. Um, so I, I, I don't. I, I don't think. I don't think the world is missing out by by my not being there. I have to say. The sportscasters are here with SL Price, award-winning writer from SI. You can find his work on SISI.com. can't find him on Twitter. But uh, just a couple more minutes left, and maybe we'll get you out of here on this. You've accomplished so much as a writer. You've been able to do so many different things in your time at SI. And I kind of wonder, what else are you hoping to accomplish in your career as a writer? Are you up in Buffalo? We are in Buffalo. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I want the Sabres to win. <laughs> you're not I, and one. I'm not and I'm not kidding. I mean I I mean you, you know they're not my favorite NHL team. I didn't grow up with them or anything. But I did a story a few years back on Chris Drury. And and I I, I don't know, it was just one of my you asked me what one of my favorite stories are and I'm I I I swear to you I'm not saying to you because you're in Buffalo. It really is one of my favorite stories. He was one of my favorite subjects I've ever dealt with. And I loved Buffalo and what it stands for, and I so much want. I think you know people talk about oh Boston hasn't won, and and you know the the San Francisco Giants, you know, and I and I'm a Giants fan. I grew up with them, so so. But you know when they won, it was the end of the drought. But I 
I think Buffalo really deserves and needs the Sabres to win. More, and, and in some ways, more than the Bills, even. I, I just feel like the devotion to that team is, is astonishing to me, and, and I, I, I would, that's the streak I want to see ended. You know, it's incredible that you mentioned that story. Uh, I remember it ran um, right around the time that the playoffs uh, had started that season, and you had been at a game in Pittsburgh. Uh, the day it was actually a day that Mario Lemieux had once again saved hockey in Pittsburgh, yes, and uh, Mario Lemieux was on the ice. I was at that game as well. Chris Jury scored in the last minute to tie it. I think the Sabers might have eventually lost the game in the shootout. But it was so funny that you would be there writing about you know Chris Jury and his clutchness, and he would get that goal. And then later in that playoffs, he scored a goal against the Rangers with 7.7 seconds to go. We talk about that all the time on their show. How about the greatest moment in Sabers history? Uh, but I remember thinking, uh, it's such a bummer that it didn't make the cover. I think instead uh, it was the Masters, uh, someone that won the Masters, and they made the cover. But, oh, we love Chris Jury. You know, the the ghost of July 1st, 2007 will forever haunt the Sabres. I mean, I, I honestly, I mean, it was really funny when I was reporting that story. You know, everything in the air was like, well, we're going to lose one, but we'll lose either, you know, Drury or Briere, you know, it'll, right. you know, we we have to lose one, and and the sort of mini debate was, you know, which one can we lose? You know, is it the sort of the great sort of promise of Briere, or or, or is it that it's solid captaincy leadership? And but no one, like like when they lost both, I was like, what what the you know? I, yeah. I was just uh, flabbergasted, but um, you know, I, I'm sure I'm not alone. You know, so yeah. anyway, I, I again, I know we've gotten way off point, um, and but. You know, my my, I just love doing great stories. I mean, I, I it, it's and the thing is, I um, Sports Illustrated has been incredibly great to me, and uh, you know, incredibly forgiving, <laughs> in the sense of allowing me to indulge. You know, Iroquois lacrosse. I mean, wow. You know, it's not like there's any sort of you know clamor for. Gosh, we need more Iroquois lacrosse. Um, you know, and and yet they they see the value in that kind of story. And as long as I can continue doing that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I, it's uh, it's win-win for me. All right, one more thing, and I promise I'll get you out of here on this. No, we we can talk forever if you want. Uh, the Super Bowl is two weeks away, and mm -hmm. the question I have for you is, as a feature writer, and I don't know if you thought about this yet or not, but I always think about this kind of thing, and me and Lee Jenkins talked about this uh, in the spring, or during the World Series, actually, in October. But as a writer and you get ready, the Super Bowl is going to be played in two weeks. Is there a certain story, is there a certain feature in this game that most interests you? I mean, there's some obvious ones like, you know, the rematch or Manning's brother, Eli versus Manning's rival, Brady, and the stadium that Manning built. You know, there's obvious ones like that. But as an accomplished writer, is there something else you see in there, something that really interests you? And if you haven't thought about it yet, Maybe there's another event or another time where there was a a feature that you saw and it turned into like something really great. I mean, look, I think in many ways the Super Bowl is the death of journalism. <laughs> <laughs> and what I mean by that is not not you know that that it's it, it's just those two weeks are you know it's so overcovered and so um, relentless and every and 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 the subjects are so walled off. That you know the challenge is to find any kind of story that no one's done before, and that is that's led to some really dopey and ridiculous you know stories and questions that we all know about you know so I mean to me, 
I would almost never look. I haven't been to a Super Bowl. Uh, it's been maybe twenty years, and and I've never missed it. To tell you the truth, um, in many ways, it's such a it's such a created event. We all know that about sports. I mean, sports is obviously a false, you know, terrarium that we've created to 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 get people to train for, and then and then and then basically pour their lives into it, and then while we're sitting there with our dissecting needles, we watch them under, and we put the ultimate pressure on them and, and, and see how they react. And that's basically what sports is. But, but the Super Bowl has become such, a, such an event of that magnitude that it's almost in, impossible to find the moment, the small moment, and the small humanity in it. And as a result, I actually check out as a writer during Super Bowl. Not that I'm not interested in the stories, but in the end, I really just want to see the game. I remember, um, and, and I mean, just the competition. I like it as just a competition. I don't want to hear about someone's grandmother or, or, you know, whatever. I just want to see the game. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I, uh, 23 years ago, got married and went on my honeymoon to uh, New Zealand. And uh, this was in January. And um, didn't hear a word about the Super Bowl buildup. And all of a sudden, like, stumbled into a hotel lobby, and there was a guy from American Samoa who was sort of watching the Super Bowl as it just came on. I was like, wow, the Super Bowl's on. I hadn't heard anything about it, and it was Joe Montana and you know, against the Bengals and you know, the incredible drive at the end and the greatest Super Bowl up at that moment that had ever been played. And I was just so grateful that I hadn't been around for any of the hype and that I could just take in the game as a pure, highest expression of football. Um, I've never enjoyed a, a Super Bowl more. Huh. All right, well... You know, we we can't express enough how much we appreciate this and the time you spent with us, and uh, we would love to do it again sometime. Hopefully, we lived up to it on our end. Uh, SL Price, you can look for his work in SI and SI.com. I know you, you, you're not one to give stuff away, but is there anything we, we, that you know you're finished that we can look forward to? Or uh, The book in Al Quippa is already on the top of my list of things I'm looking forward to. Yeah, and and uh, and I'm a ways away. I'm I'm on book leave right now, uh, working on that. So that's basically uh, that's that's where I'm at at this point. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. We really appreciate it, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Thanks. I I hope this was in some way helpful. Yes. Thank you very much. Okay. All right, we are back, and I want to thank S.L. Price. You know what S.L. stands for, Don? I don't. Scott Lawrence Price. Oh. So I want to thank Mr. Price for joining us on the show today. Normally, right around this time, uh, we have been experimenting with a top 10 list. And believe it or not, when I was preparing for the show, the first idea I had here was that we would do a top 10 list of our top 10 moments from NHL All-Star Games. And then I thought about it for a second and I had like three things on my sheet. <laughs> and I'm like uh I have no idea. Yeah, I can only think of one and that's cuz I'm a homer and that would be a uh, Hashik winning Owen the MVP. Nolan right, pointing at it. Pointing at him. Yeah. I had that. I had Burray getting a hat trick and winning the MVP and uh that was about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, when it comes to All-Star Games, not a lot happens. But anyway, <laughs> instead of doing the top 10 today, Don and I are going to do 
put ourselves in what is a fun and cool thing about the NHL All-Star break. On Thursday, which is a few days before the game is going to be played, the game's played on Sunday. On Thursday, on the NBC Sports Network, the NHL is going to have what they did last year. They're going to have it again, a fantasy draft to separate the players that have been nominated for the game into the two separate teams. The two teams are going to be one, Team Chara, who is the captain of one team, and Joffrey Lupo is his assistant. The other team is Team Alfredson, who is the captain of the host. This game is in Ottawa this year. And his captain, assistant captain, is Henry Lundqvist. So we are going to do a mock draft of this fantasy draft that the NHL will hold on Thursday. Saturday, they'll do the skills competition, and Sunday, they'll play the game. So instead of doing a top 10 list this week, Don and I are going to do a mock draft. So now here's another thing I should mention. We're not going to try to put ourselves in the heads of these guys and think of what they would pick. We're just going to take the power away from them. We're going to note that on my team, Alfredson and Lundqvist are already members, and on Dad's team, Chara and Lupo are already members. The NHL kind of sorted that out from us. From there, we're going to pick the teams. Now, there's two rules to keep in mind. All goaltenders must be taken by the end of round 10, and all defensemen must be taken by the round, end of round 15. The reason they do that is so that there's drama in terms of who will be the last player picked. If they didn't do it that way, there wouldn't be any drama because you know you could just say, well, uh, okay, Team Chara needs a goalie still. So you know it's not that they're you know as soon as Team Alfredson picked their three goalies, there'd be no reason for Team Chara to pick a goalie. Right. So that's why they have that rule. So let's do it. I'm going to be a gentleman. I'm going to give Don the first pick. And let's see how this plays out. All right, I'm going to go with uh, a guy that uh, maybe isn't always the best two-way player, but he's an absolute sniper, and I'm going to take Steven Stamkos. All right, so Don kicks us off with Stamkos. All right, I uh, I have Alfredson and Lundqvist on my team already. I want a big score, too, on the team. There's been a guy who's been playing better than anyone in the league right now. He was the number one star in the NHL. Last week, I'm going to take Evgeny Malkin. All right, my next pick, I'm going to again. No, you know what? Forget that. I'm going to go with defense. This game's not about defense, so I want a defenseman that can move the puck. I'm going to go with Chris Letang. Chris Letang and two Penguins are off the board. All right, I'm going to stick with offense. I got Malkin on my team, and I'm pretty happy with that. You know, there's a guy who's just dazzled me all year. Yeah, I know where you're and going. And I really enjoyed uh, watching him on 24-7. I'm going to pick Claude Giroux. Oh, it's not where I thought you were going. So I'm going to go with a guy who, uh, when healthy, is one of the best in the league. Uh, just great hands, great skater. I'm going to go with Marion Gabrick. Yeah, Gabrick has, uh, has been a stud this year as well. All right, uh, it's time for me to get a defenseman on the team. I don't want Don to steal all the good ones. And when you look at the list of the defensemen this year, there's not a lot of – there's a few names kind of missing, I would say. Some guys that I would expect to be out there who aren't. But it doesn't get much better than Shea Weber, and this guy can shoot the puck, man. So I'm going to be excited to have him not only for the skills competition – I think I got the hardest <laughs> shot locked up, oh, yeah. but also for the game. So I'm going to pick Shea Weber. I forgot about that. I didn't think about that. 
I'm going to stick with defense and ride the hot hand that is Eric Carlson, who's just one of the top scorers in the league, not just the top defensive scorers. So I'll take Eric Carlson, and uh, I'm not sure what what competitions he's going to win me, but I'll hope to put up some big points in the game. Well, I want to. I want to. I'm going to stick with my thoughts about the skills competition a little bit. I want to dazzle the crowd, and nobody will dazzle you quite like Pavel Datsuk. So I'm going to pick Pavel Datsuk. All right, I got to get a goalie here, and the guy that's probably the best in the league right now is off the board because he's one of the captains. But I'm going to take uh, maybe the winningest goalie, or not maybe, but the winningest goalie in the league this year. And I'll go with Jimmy Howard. All right, I need a goalie too. I mean, I already have Lundqvist, but I got to pick two more in the next five rounds. So if Don's going to kind of force my hand a little bit, I don't want any part of this, uh, <laughs> you know, anti-government nut job that is I Tim Thomas. <laughs> you know what? I think he's probably the best goalie out there. But do you think that there's going to be a negative response at an all-star game? I don't want him. I don't want any part of it. <laughs> I'm staying as far away from it as I can. Uh, you know, I'd like Carey Price. I feel bad for the kid. He's in a really tough spot. I think there's no tougher job than goaltender in Montreal. Montreal. So I'm going to pick Carey Price. We'll keep the uh, run on goaltenders going. And I'll take Jonathan Quick from the Kings. Uh, Well, I might as well get it over with. And I'm going to make sure you get stuck with Tim Thomas. So I'm going to close out my goaltenders. And I am going to pick the last one left. And that is Brian Elliott. So we are now in the... This is the seventh round, buddy. Top of the seventh. Okay, so when they, they don't count the uh, the captains as being picked in rounds one and two then? No. Okay, so I got time. I'll just leave. We'll let Timmy sweat it out there on the bench. <laughs> Tim Thomas is basically, you can pencil him in as a pick in the top of the tenth. <laughs> That's my guess. Okay, uh, I got my defense. I got my puck-moving defenseman. Uh Let's get some youth and speed and some uh, hands. And I'm going to go with uh, Taylor Sagan. Tyler Sagan. Tyler Sagan. Picking a Bruin, huh? I know. I'm surprised. You know, they've lasted probably way longer than they're going to last in the actual draft. Oh, yeah, no kidding. And that's the Sedin brothers. So I got first pick here. I got choice. I always liked Henrik a little bit more. So I'm going to take Henrik Sedin. I think this will actually happen at the draft, too, but once one of them is selected, the yep. other team is going to make sure the other one doesn't go to that team. So I'll have to take Daniel Sedin. There goes Daniel. That's in the uh, the top of the eighth. With my pick in the bottom of the eighth, look at I'm from Buffalo. I love Buffalo hockey. So I'm going to pick Patrick Kane. Patrick yep. Kane was in the All-Star game last year, but didn't get picked because he was one of the captains. So I'm going to make sure he doesn't have to sit there sweating it out anymore. I'm going to pick Patrick Kane. He made his boy Taves sweat it out last year a little he bit. He did, and that was one of the funnier things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you get a chance to watch it, really watch it. it, is, it it's funny. It, you get to see the personality of the guys. Man, I'm just drafting a team that I, on a fan level, don't like. But my next pick, I'm going to take Phil Kessel. There might not be a hotter player in the league, and he's not going to be the last drafted kid this year. So I'll go with Kessel. Yeah, you definitely you just made his family very happy because he won the car last year, and the last thing he'd want to do is win that car uh, <laughs> two times in a row. I'm just going to write you down right now for Tim Thomas as your 10th okay. pick because right. you don't have any choice, and then I'll just make the next two. Uh, I have to have six defensemen on my team by the 15th round, and right now 
I only have Shea Weber. So I got to get to business and take some defensemen here. I've always been in awe of the way this guy can skate. And Don's picking a team he hates. I'm going to pick some guys I like. And I love the way Brian Campbell skates. And I'm glad to see him having a little bit of a resurgence in his career this year. So I'm going to take Brian Campbell. You know what? I'm Team Alfredson, and my buddy Jason Spezza has been sitting there sweating it out <laughs> a little bit too much. So I'm going to take Jason Spezza. He's having a great year, too, by the way. Yeah, he is. Man, there's a lot of good players in an all-star game. It's, it's an understatement, but uh, my brother's a big Sharks guy. I'm going to go with Logan Couture from the Sharks. And in the bottom of the 11th, i got to get going on my D here a little bit more. I'm going to take Ryan Sutter. Uh, I have Shea Weber, so I get to pair these guys together, just like in the National Hockey League. And it's going to give me one nasty top top uh, top D set. Yeah, there. that's a nasty real-life D pairing there. Just to update, we have one, two, three, four rounds left to make sure you have six defensemen. Right. All right, I'll take one of those defensemen right now. Another guy that's known a little more for his offense than for his defense, but that's probably the case with a lot of these guys. I'm going to take Kimo Timonen. All right, if you're going to take Timonen, take Jan- Dan Girardi. I'm a Rangers guy, and I like the resurgence that Girardi's had in his career. So I'm going to take Girardi. I'll take uh, Keith Yandel. Keith Yandel, I think he would be the lone uh, Phoenix Coyotes representative in, in these proceedings. So I have four defensemen and three rounds left to pick two. So I'm going to take a break from that, and I'm going to take a score. Oh, boy. I'm going to take Marion Hosa. Seems like he yeah. might be the best talent left on this, so I'm going to take Hosa. All right, this guy isn't your typical uh, – he's not really a new NHL-type player, but he's just a pure goal scorer. He's not probably one of the worst skaters at the uh, All-Star game. Like Goals are what counts, so I'm going to take John Tavares. You know, I like Tavares a lot, and there was a really good article about him in he's just a weird the hockey player. news. Yeah, you watch him play, though, and – he never looks like the best skater because, I mean, he's not ever the best skater out there, but he just he's a guy that just scores goals. He sure does. All right, I need to get my last defenseman, and I don't want any part of Dion Phaneuf, so I'm going to take Alex Elder. Edler, excuse me. I don't want any part of Dion Phaneuf either. I'm going to take Dennis Weidman. So my sixth is Phaneuf, unfortunately. How did he make the All-Star game? I have no idea. He made the All-Star game in a year that he was voted. Oh, he was voted in. Oh, okay. He was one of the five that were voted. He was in. also voted by players as the most overrated player in the league, or That's one right. of the top. All right, so hold on. Let's reset this a bit. Drafted all the drafted all the goalies. All the goalies. We drafted all the defensemen. Here's what's left on forward: Corey Perry, Jason Pominville, Jerome Ginla, Jamie Ben, Mahama Mahalik, and James Neal who we assume will take over for Ovechkin. Yeah, that's a guess. It could also be someone like maybe like a Danny Heatley. Uh, there's a few guys that could do it. But Neil actually makes more sense probably than Scott Hartnell replacing Jonathan Taves just based on Oh, and I didn't, point production. S- I didn't say Hartnell, did I? Hartnell's left as well. Man, these guys that are left are kind of uh, better real-life players than maybe all-star players. I'll take Corey Perry, I guess. I mean, I'm the Alfredson team, so it makes sense for me to take Mahalik here. There's no way There's no way that an Ottawa Senator is going to be the last pick in this draft. All right, this guy probably is a little bit actually drafted too late, and I'm glad to get him here. Uh, real exciting young player to watch. I'll take Jordan Eberle. Give me Jerome Ginla. He got his 500th goal this year. He, d- he deserves to not be the last pick. 
All right, I'm going to make uh, a hometown pick here, a player that's been real nice and what's been a dismal year for the Sabres. I'll take Jason Pominville. What's left here? we got Scott Hartnell, Jamie Benn, and James Neal. This is the last pick before the last round. Man, there are a lot of f- players in the NHL. <laughs> I'm going to pick Scott Hartnell. All right, so here we are, last round, round number 19. This is, uh, this is where it all gets decided here. That means that basically... In the All-Star, each team has 21 players, three goalies, six defensemen, 12 forwards. 12 forwards. Yep. So pick your 12 forward, Don. Uh, Jamie Benn is going to be the victim of an East Coast bias here. <laughs> uh, I'm going to take James Neal. He's got over 25 goals at the break or right around 25. So sorry, Jamie Benn, but I, I couldn't pick you out of a lineup, honestly. So Don picks the guy that may or may not even be in the game, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but we had to pick someone. So and and we you know we couldn't. Avechkin says he's not going to be there. We have to take him at his word. And with the last pick, I will take Jamie Benn. Okay. Instead of recapping this right now, what I'm going to do is I will type this up and put it tonight on our Tumblr page. So by the time you're listening to this, it will be on our Tumblrs, Don and I's two teams, in our first ever NHL All-Star Game Fantasy Draft Mock Edition. We are going to take a break and be right back with Michael Farber. Our next guest was born and raised in New Jersey and is a graduate of Rutgers University. After college, he worked in small markets like Virgin County, New Jersey and Binghamton, New York. Before spending 15 years as an award-winning sports columnist and writer for the Montreal Gazette. In 1994, he joined Sports Illustrated where he is a senior writer. He is also one of the 18 members of the Hockey Hall of Fame Selection Committee. He has won many awards and has often been honored for his outstanding writing. In 2003, he was honored with the Elmer Ferguson Award from the Hockey Hall of Fame for Distinguished Hockey Writing. In 2007, he won the Outstanding Sports Writing Award from Sports Media Canada. His feature on Sidney Crosby's 2010 Golden Goal at the Olympic Games has been featured in the Best American Sports Writing Series and Sports Illustrated's collection of great hockey writing called Hockey Talk hat-tricks to headshots and everything in between. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very great Michael Farber. How are you doing today, Mr. Farber? I'm well, Stephen. How are you? Doing very good. I couldn't be more excited to have you on the show today. You know, we're very, very big hockey fans here located in Buffalo, New York. Um, So it's been tough. I got to tell you that. It's been been really tough. I can't remember. Understandable. I can't remember. I've been a season ticket holder now for the last... Well, since the lockout ended, and I can't remember, I can't remember it being like this. Even back to being, I mean, it's just never been so bad. As an outsider, when you watch the Sabers, what do you see? What what has gone? November fifteenth, we were two points out of first place in the Eastern Conference. What has happened? What went wrong? I know injuries are a part of it, but there's got to be something more there, right? Well, every team is injured in the National Hockey League. Uh, that's just the price of admission. You're going to get hurt, and sometimes it's going to be key players, sometimes not key players. One of the reasons the Bruins have been so successful this year after a rocky start is they've been a relatively healthy team. 
the Pittsburgh Penguins have had some problems because Pittsburgh has been an unhealthy team. But to return to the Sabres, it's way more than injuries. Uh, Ryan Miller, who's the All-American puck-stopping machine in Vancouver, uh, just about two years ago, just can't seem to find his game right now, and that's hurt them because Jonas Enroth has probably been better than Miller, and that's shocking given Enroth's relatively modest pedigree. Uh, I think up front what has happened is Buffalo uh, has gotten a little stale. Uh, the players have maybe gotten too comfortable or aren't producing for whatever reason. There's a certain staleness around the team. Now, I know Darcy Regeer with... Uh, some money provided by Terry Pagula went out and tried to change that mix a little bit, added Vili Leno, who hasn't done much of anything, Robin Regeer, uh, who has, I believe, two points last time I checked and hasn't been a, a major force. Uh, so the moves haven't worked, uh, and you can only paint the walls and recarpet the dressing room so much. Or there have to be more substantive changes. I thought Buffalo would be a team in the playoffs, and clearly that's not happening unless the Sabres have a massive turnaround in the last 40% of the season. Yeah, you know, it seems it seemed to me going into the season, after the great run that they went on after January 1st last year, that the off season was pretty simple. You know, they needed to get a little bit better at center, maybe add a tough defenseman, and that, you know, things would be smooth, that they'd be one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference. Do you think the mistake was made right away when they thought that they could sign Vili Leno and kind of convert him to center? Do you think that money would have been wiser spent on a true center? Because within about 15 games, that experiment was over, and he had went to Lindy Ruff and said he wanted to play wing. Right. Uh, and I'm a, a Leno fan from certainly his work early in his career in Detroit and then in Philadelphia. I didn't think it was a bad signing. I thought maybe the Sabres overreached with Christian Erhoff, uh, certainly overpaid. Uh, Erhoff delivers offensively. I've never been a huge fan of him on the back end. Um, but you know, the, the Sabres were in spending mode, and I think that was important because there's a covenant between ownership and fans in every NHL city. Uh, you're doing this for your fans to a certain degree. Uh, they are your customers. And you have to keep the customers happy. And certainly uh, some money injected into the organization by Terry Bugula was something that the Sabres needed. It had been kind of a shoestring organization. It had been the franchise that everybody left. It wasn't one that players went to. And now some players, now they weren't A-listers, but some good players, I thought, and uh, certainly Leno and Regeer was one of the leaders in Calgary and Erhoff had his moments in Vancouver, certainly. I thought these were solid B-listers who would certainly buttress what the Sabres had there. But they're not getting much from their core players, and Derek Roy. and uh, Disappointing season for Tyler Myers, who's beyond the sophomore jinx now. I guess, Stephen, is this a junior jinx? <laughs> if, if it happens for a third year, but he was a rookie of the year. Uh, who I thought was destined for big and tall things and still could be, um, but he really hasn't progressed the way he should. Yeah, he makes terrible decisions with the puck. You know, you mentioned the fans, and every fan here in Buffalo seems to have their idea on how to fix things. You know, some people are in the fire Lindy Ruff camp. Some people think it's Darcy Greer that needs to be fired. Some people say, oh, we'll trade Derek Roy or, you know, trade Drew Stafford. 
as an outsider, what do you think the Sabres need to do to try to turn things around? And do you think that there's a quick fix out there? Or do you think that this is something that we're just going to have to be patient and the team needs to be kind of blown up and rebuilt a little bit? Uh, I think uh, Buffalo might be a little stale, and that happens to, to teams. Uh, I have been in this business for well, pretty close to 40 years, and I am not of the fire the coach, fire the manager school. I'm just not, because that is messing with people's livelihoods. And who am I to go willy-nilly you know, into that? Now, it doesn't mean I haven't done it uh, in my writing life. Uh, I have for occasion, I, uh, on occasions, and I'm uh, looking at the Montreal managerial situation right now. I think a change is, is overdue, and, and I've said that. Um, but I think Lindy Ruff is a very good coach. Uh, he was part of the Canadian staff in 2010. Canada won the gold medal in Vancouver. Uh, Darcy Regeer has done some good work under very difficult ownership circumstances. Uh, he's been a loyal guy. He's a smart guy. Um, maybe sometimes things need to be shaken up, um, but I, I like constancy. Uh, as a rule, I like what Buffalo has done. Uh, I like what Nashville has done with the combination of David Boyle and Barry Trotz. Uh, so I don't necessarily think that's an issue, um, but I think the team does need some refreshing that goes beyond the cosmetic changes at Midland Arena, Marine Midland Arena, HBC Center. What's it called now? It is currently called the First Niagara Center, or as people call it here, the Ethan Center. Well, you see, I, I have a rule. You get one name change. Right. And after that, it go it reverts. So I generally think of it as the new odd. See, all these world. banks, they keep they keep going out of business. You know what I mean? <laughs> like Marie Midland Arena turned into HSBC, and then I don't know what happened to HSBC. And I don't know. It was originally called the Crossroads when they were building it. So I would just like to go that back I to that, know. maybe. Yeah, so it's called Crossroads. That, they used, at the odd, they used to always play the uh, Eric Clapton Crossroads song, you know, to pump people up for the for the new arena. So if there was a player on the team that you think one has some value left, is it a Drew Stafford? Is it a Derek Roy? Is is are those guys that other teams would be interested in? Or um, well, as we approach uh, February twenty seventh, which is D Day. For, for trades in the National Hockey League. And uh, lots of teams uh, will be amping up for that, and some teams will be making moves well uh, before that. Uh, I think Drew Stafford is, is the kind of player, because of his size, uh, that will appeal to certain teams. Uh, Derek Roy, because uh, even though he's a centerman, because he's a little bit undersized, I think teams will be a little bit more reluctant uh, to look at him. I think his contract plays into that as well. Uh, so when you look at the Sabres, uh, certainly those are, are two top six forwards who could be on the move. Uh, I haven't discussed either name specifically with any general managers. Uh, and, you know, there are more important things in life than trade rumors, although sometimes I don't think fans get that. Uh, <laughs> And because they become obsessed, and after the deadline passes, they say, "Well, what are we going to talk about now until the playoffs start?" Uh, so it's uh, we get obsessed with possibilities. I, I was at the morning skate, Boston's morning skate here in Washington, 
and I was talking to a writer. I said, it's really odd because, you know, when a guy gets moved, people in the, his old city said, oh, this guy was terrible, and they were just tired of looking at him, and and then the other team that gets him, and the people in the city are saying, wow, Derek Roy, you know, he's, boy, he's had some really good seasons, you know, boy, that's, we're looking at, you know, we have a whole year, that's a 30-goal man, or Drew Stafford, well, some some strength down the, the wing, so uh, it, it's it's amazing how quickly we hit the reset button when a trade is made. Well, as you said, there's more important things in life. There's certainly more important things in this interview than the 15th place team in the Eastern Conference. So <laughs> well, let's kind of move on a little bit. Um, I'm curious, we're basically at the All-Star break here. There's a couple of games tonight and maybe one game tomorrow, and that's it. Uh, I wonder, basically, generally speaking, as a writer or Hall of Fame writer, what has surprised you about this season so far? Um, what, what surprised me is how quickly we forget and we keep moving on to certain things. Um, and maybe it's because uh, we want to have collective amnesia and, and forget what's uh, looming ahead, which is another lockout uh, on the horizon. Uh, but that's been the biggest surprise that, you know, Sidney Crosby out of sight, out of mind. And, you know, this is something that we should be out there talking about pretty much every day. Uh, concussions are, if the league won't use the term epidemic, I will. Uh, there are reasons for it. Um, the, we understand it better. We diagnose them better. We, we, we treat them better in sports now. Um, but still things have, are happening so fast uh, that uh, the game needs to examine itself and, and perhaps uh, tinker again with the rules. Uh, some talking to an NHL coach in the past few days, he said that what we're seeing now is the law of unintended consequences because we sped the game up, uh, we didn't allow holdups and the neutral zone or really anywhere, and you know, players can come and hit people with speed that they didn't have, and he thinks that's the cause of uh, a lot of the concussions. Now, this is anecdotal, of course. He, you know, he couldn't come up with a sheath of statistics to support that. Right. Uh, but the Sidney Crosby story and how quickly that's faded into the background rather than being front and center, uh, to me, has been a surprise because Crosby means so very much uh, on the, the more kind of micro level I mean the you know the play of certain teams has surprised me both good and bad the Rangers have surprised me I really like the way they play I'm surprised that Ken Hitchcock in St. Louis has revitalized that team so very quickly I'm surprised that the Sabres are 15th in the National Hockey League and that Ryan Miller is not an all-star goalie um, because uh, I have so much respect for his body of work. Um, uh, these are the things that, that have uh, surprised me. You know, you, me you mentioned the issue of concussions, and that's been a huge one this year. And, you know, some things we've talked about on the show here is, and it's it's come up the last few days, you know, Taylor Hall had a really scary incident in warm-ups without a helmet. Um, that yes. could have been really disastrous. And Jason Spezza last night, just a few days later, 
also had uh, an accident in warm-ups. And, you know, one thing we've talked about on this show is maybe the NHL needs to encourage things like making sure players wear mouth guards, making sure players have the best helmet, maybe not the helmet that's most comfortable to them, you know, making sure chin straps are on, things like that. Do you think there's simple fixes like that that could improve it, or do you think that they need to look at drastic things like maybe you said putting the red line back in to slow people down a little bit in the neutral zone? Or allowing players to maybe put a hand on a guy when they're about to drive him into the boards um, just to kind of lessen the impact a little bit as opposed to, you know, with the rules about clutching and grabbing, them having to keep keep hands on the stick at all times. What do you think the league can do to, to kind of cut down on these concussions? Well, the Ryan Burke the bear hug rule I, I quite like, where you can kind of put your arms around a guy and steer him into the into the boards rather than ram them into the boards. And, and I do like that. Uh, but it's not only the league, it's the Players Association that has to take a harder look at it. I don't know Donald Fear, really, and uh, mostly by reputation. Uh, but the only PA head in my time uh, who really spoke publicly and passionately about player safety was Paul Kelly of course, lost out in the uh, putch in Chicago a few years ago. Uh, it's generally been about the last dollar. And when you do talk to players about safety concerns, like no-touch icing, and, and I do that on occasion, uh, they look at you like you have a third eye, uh, because it's it's not first and foremost. And I know of no union that doesn't put a premium on the safety of its members. Um, but uh, hockey is a, an interesting game, Stephen, because it is not played at the edge. It's often played over the edge. Uh, it, it's a game where you're encouraged even to color outside the lines. And when that goes on, you know, these kinds of things can happen. Uh, so uh, it's, it's a collision game. It's a physical game. It's a cruel game at times. And it's part of what makes hockey a wonderful game. And, and I think uh, that you run the risk of tamping down some of that uh, intimidation factor that all uh, comprises what the sport's about. So uh, I think the PA has to look at it, and they are doing so in terms of equipment in conjunction with the league. Uh, and the players have to take some responsibility uh, in terms of making sure, as you mentioned, helmets are worn properly and right helmets are worn. And uh, we're just not going to erase all the problems of the sport and all the injury problems of the sport. Um, but certainly, you know, players' safety hasn't received the attention I think it deserves. You mentioned Donald Fear and, and not knowing a whole lot about him, but it seems like he may have fired his first shot um, in the NHL Players Association's decision to not go along with the realignment. What have you heard about that decision, and do you agree with some of the opinions that have been out there that this is the union kind of asserting themselves and, and getting ready for the next fight with the owners in terms of collective bargaining and things like that? Or do you think that they're being honest when they say, well, we just, we're concerned about travel or things like that? Well, I do think it, maybe it hasn't been the first uh, shot, but certainly it's been the loudest shot at it, and it's certainly within the players' rights. And the NHL was high-handed in not making the players partners 
uh, as they were discussing this. And the NHL said, this is what we want to do, and yeah, the players have to sign off on it. Well, you know, maybe these things can, can be avoided if it is done with the players' cooperation in the first place. Now, the notion of, of travel I found disingenuous because players I talked to really look forward to playing in every rink every year, which might add to travel. I favored the realignment uh, because I believe you have to start backwards, what makes the best playoffs, and then work back to the regular season. And I think divisional playoffs uh, certainly have produced consistently the most compelling hockey if we go back to the old Norris Division battles and the battles of Alberta in, in the Smythe and the, what would go on in the Adams Division with Montreal and Boston every year or Montreal and Quebec. So there, there was a lot going on there, and I think the league got that part of it right. Now they probably got the process wrong. And the Players Association was certainly within its rights to do what it did. I, I have no problems with that. But I, does think, I do think it heralds uh, some, oh, fractious negotiating that we will see in, uh, after the All-Star break because uh, Donald Fear is not going to roll over. He's perhaps not the ideologue that Bob Goodenow was. Uh, I think he's perhaps pragmatic enough to get a deal. But the NHL saw what the NBA owners got and thought, gee, that doesn't look too bad to me. We rolled back numbers, and currently players receive 57% of gross revenues, uh, depending on what's going on with escrow in any given year. And at least that's what they're supposed to get, 57%. So I'm sure the NHL would like to cut that back. They'd like to cut the length of contract. Uh, amnesty, you know, you can walk away from a bad contract every so often. All these things sound pretty good. And the NBA started up, uh, sacrificed a little part of the schedule, but until Christmas Day, the NBA is not that big a deal anyway. And in the States, the NHL is not a huge deal uh, during the early part of the football season and during the baseball playoffs. So um, if there is going to be a, a time where the NHL owners don't feel the pinch, it would be early in the season. And that's why right now, and without negotiations having started, I'm pessimistic that the season will start on time next year. Mm. That's that's disappointing. Uh, you know, we're we're at All Star break here, and just about, and I'm already kind of a little bit worried that our representative Jason Pomerville might be winning a car in a couple of days. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um. I'm just curious, what do you think about what the league has done with the All-Star break? Do you think it's just, you know, three days of gimmicks? Is there anything you like, anything you don't like? Is it just a necessary evil of sports? Um, where do you stand on things like fantasy drafts and skill competitions and then ultimately the All-Star game? Well, you know, I hate to be the old guy standing at the door yelling at kids to get off his lawn. Um, but I, I don't like some of the things that have happened, and I'm not a fan necessarily of the fantasy draft. Uh, but you have to look at what the NHL is doing now, at least until the Stanley Cup playoffs. It's all about events. It's all about the sizzle. They figure hockey fans will just turn in and, and come out for games and tune in on TV. 
that they're trying to attract more corporate dollars, and, and the All-Star Games have been answered for that, so it's a necessary evil, as you put it. Uh, and they want to jazz things up. So there's games in Europe, and there's now a, a Thursday or a Friday game post-Thanksgiving, and, and the outdoor games and all the other stuff. So this is part of it, and this is what John Collins, the COO of the league, has done, and he's done a brilliant job of it. And the NHL was a mom-and-pop league that kind of just got by and did things the same way all the time. And Collins has brought some pizzazz to it, and I, I suppose we can't hate that. And the fantasy draft is a little more pizzazz. Um, it appeals to some people. Uh, there's so much time spent in hockey not looking at who's best or who's first, but who's last. We, we spend months obsessing over who's going to finish eighth and make the playoffs. And President's Trophy, yeah, who cares? Because once the playoffs starts, no one will remember who won the President's Trophy. We want to know who finishes eighth. We're number eight. That's really a cool thing. And, and so, you know, I can't tell you who was drafted first last year, uh, but I can tell you about Phil Kessel. Right. Uh, because that uh, kind of scratches our itch. And, and hockey almost seems to have it backwards with that. that instead of celebrating first, we celebrate eighth. Um, maybe it's the inclusiveness of, of this wonderful game, but uh, who knows? So uh, the, the great moment in every All-Star game is about four minutes into the actual game when there is deathly silence in the arena, and the fans start looking around, saying, "This is it." <laughs> this is it. I mean, have we been scammed? Uh, you have all these star players, and and it looks like bad shinny. Right, and uh, that's the nature of the game, and I, I, you know, I've even seen it in Canadian cities where they should know better. And this is uh, it's an all-star game, buyer beware. Yeah, you know it's funny you say that because we do a thing each week on the show here where we we come up with these top ten lists, and one of the ideas I had for the top ten this week was maybe to do a top ten moments in the NHL All-Star Game, and I couldn't think of more than like three things that have happened in the probably 30 all-star games I've seen. So we scrapped that idea because I, geez, I don't know. Well, you know, what's interesting is the all-star game, as I'm sure you remember or at least have read about, started out as the all-stars against the Stanley Cup champion. Right. And these were terrific games. And I haven't mind the tweaks during, over the years, you know, the conference against conference or even starting in 98. North America versus was, world. Yeah, yeah, because that had that had a certain logic because of the NHL players going to the Olympics in 1998, and that added to it. So uh, what Team Lidstrom and Team Stahl were, I can't tell you who was on what team, and it has no historical resonance. And I think people look back in 20 or 50 years and say, wow, what did that mean? And even though they're trying to recapture or just picking up sides, I don't think it works very well, but it does give you the fantasy draft, which is one more element of the razzle-dazzle that the NHL is so smitten with right now. You know, one underrated kind of casualty of the NFL's labor dispute last year was the kind of death of hard knocks, at least for one year. 
And one of yeah. the great things that's happened to the NHL the last few years has been the build-up towards the Winter Classic and HBO's wonderful program 24-7. And I will be very upset if the lockout or potential lockout in the NHL next year messes with my 24-7. But I'm yeah. curious, curious as someone who is a journalist, what do you think of the show and, and how do you think it's, it's done as a vehicle to advance uh, popularity of the game here in the United States? Uh, I think the second season was disappointing compared to the first. I thought the first season was far more compelling, maybe because it was fresher, uh, or maybe because the most important players on the Rangers weren't very interesting TV characters, uh, Brad Richards, Marion Gabrick, and even Henrik Lundqvist. So uh, it was centered around the coach, John Tortorella, and that was that was fine. Uh, I'm a big Tortorella fan, as difficult as he can be at times. I have a lot of time for John Tortorella. Uh, and Philadelphia was missing Pronger, who would have been uh, a big element of the show. I think uh, Claude Giroux's concussion added to it, uh, but I don't think there was a lot of there. The previous year, we had Washington's losing streak. We had Bruce Boudreau. We had Ovechkin. Uh, we had the chemistry on the Penguins, uh, I thought added something. We had contrasting styles and coaches, and I thought it was much better TV. The, the thing that amazes me is how NBC, uh, but more particularly Canadian networks such as CBC, with Talking Night Package, and TSN, which is a Canadian uh, cable, sports cable outlet, which is kind of ESPN in Canada, right. uh, how they just go ahead and say, oh, fine, uh, I'd be screaming bloody murder. They're paying incredible rights fees, and HBO waltzes in, and the production values are great, and there's, it's meticulous and everything else, uh, but they're paying the league nothing, uh, while the rights holders are on the outside looking in. And as a rights holder, I would not be pleased, not one little bit, that HBO gets the access uh, that it gets. And I'm um, sure TSN or CBC or even NBC Sports Channel would really like that, and they just don't get it. And I think that's uh, you know, it's not my beeswax, but I find it fascinating that uh, HBO gets to pretty much do whatever it wants. You know, I read a... I'm, I'm going to reread re one line in your bio here, and it says that you're one of the 18 members of the Hockey Hall of Fame selection committee. And yes. you know, I want to let you know that I grew up, I grew up a huge, huge, huge Pavel Bure fan. Hockey means to me what it does because of Pavel Bure. I have a closet full of jerseys. I have a younger brother who plays D1 hockey now for Yale, and one of the things that we both shared was our love for Pavel Bure. And I have to ask you, um, and I might—I don't know how you vote each year, whether you're for or against his candidacy for the Hall of Fame, but I have to ask you what it is that you think prevents him from being a member. Well, let me explain the process to you. Okay. Uh, you have to be nominated. And you have to be nominated by one of the 18 members of the committee. Uh, and I can't divulge whether Bure has been nominated or not. We, we don't discuss what goes on. But let's presume he 
has been nominated. So first, any a player like Burray or I don't know who else you think deserves to be in. I don't know Phil Housley or Adam Oates or uh, help me out Pat Verbeek or Burray. Tell me <laughs> Burray. Just... That's what matters okay. to me. Okay. <laughs> Burray. Okay. So right. so Pavel Burray. And what would right. happen? Uh, you know, we take public submissions, and that can certainly point us in a direction uh, for somebody. Uh, if you wrote a letter to the Hockey Hall of Fame, we would certainly see it and made an impassioned case and a persuasive case for Burry, and someone might uh, might nominate him. So we take the list of nominees in a given year, and they are all discussed around a table. Now, we can have a maximum of four male players a year. There can also be a maximum of two female players a year. And there are two players were elected two years ago, and there were none, no women last year. So if you do nominate a woman, you do not nominate a man. So we're allowed one nominee in the players category, one in the builders category. So uh, we will take these players, and then we will vote for them, and by the process of elimination, if players will drop off the ballot, and then we will be allowed to vote for others. Uh, and sometimes votes are split. And last year, for example, there was no builder, and I would suggest to you that was probably because uh, votes were split, and you need a supermajority to get in. You need 75% of the members of uh, the voting members. So you need 14 votes, and it's tough to convince 14 people of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe not Wayne Gretzky, but uh, you know Pavel Burry. Now the argument for Pavel Burry is 360 goal seasons. Why no one was argument. scoring 60 goals either? Right. Yeah. So uh, I mean, I think you can make a great case for for Pavel Burry, and I think there are other people you can also make a great case for. Uh, you know, Adam Oates and and, and what have you. Uh, and if you look at players who are, are eligible, have been retired for three years, uh, this time around you can make a great case for Joe Sackett and Matt Sundin and Brendan Shanahan and perhaps uh, a few others. So uh, when, you know, Jeremy Roenick. So when you're looking at you know, that list, and, and it's not every year four players do get in, because of the way the voting breaks down. So uh, I think an excellent case can be made for Burray, and uh, trust me, he hasn't been blackballed. Fair enough. Um, it does sound, doesn't sound like next year is going to be the year because I think some of those guys you named are certainly going to be slam dunks. I don't think there's anything keeping Joe Sackick out. I can't imagine. Well, Joe Sackick... Uh, you know, was a very impressive player, and also internationally. And the same thing with Sundin. You know, a gold medal in '06, and a monster for Sweden for so many years. And in fact, a better player internationally than Peter Forsberg, as great a player as Forsberg was. So, uh, you know, we haven't even discussed goalies. I mean, you can make a right. case for Mike Vernon or Tom Barrasso or Curtis Joseph. Uh, with 400 plus wins, I mean, there, uh, it's it's tough to get people to see things exactly the way you do, Steve. Right. Well, you know, that was one that stung was Balfour because I just thought, you know, as a fan, you know, as a fan of Bure, and I don't have anything against Balfour. I just 
when I put their resumes together. I, I was just a surprise to me. But you mentioned international play. That does that's big, right? That's a well. Every voter brings his own <clears throat> set of criteria, uh-huh. uh, and might put more weight on something than somebody else. Somebody might be very numbers driven. Uh, you know, um, I give you some insight into the way I look at it. Is were you the dominant player at your position in your era? And that to me is as persuasive as raw numbers, because you know, numbers and eras change, and there's an ebb and flow uh, to all that. So I this is what uh, I look at. And the other thing is, and this might help Pavel Burry is can you write the history of the game in this player's time without mentioning him? If you can, he's probably not a Hall of Famer. If you have to mention him, you know, prominently and for good things, I'm not talking about Donald Brashear and Marty McSorley, but if you're talking about mostly good things, then uh, he probably is a Hall of Famer. Well, I'm going to start working on that letter. Okay. I'm going to do it. I'm going to start working on that letter, and you guys are going to... Sit around the table next year, and you're going to see that letter, and you're probably going to say, "Well, not this year." Well, right? Our meetings are, I think, June 25th and 26th in Toronto. Okay, I'll get it in. Last thing, we'll get you out of here on this. Sportscasters are here with Michael Farber, great writer for Sports Illustrated, SportsIllustrated.com. Uh, the listeners and and I have spent a great deal of time in the last few weeks reading the new Sports Illustrated paperback book. Um, that I mentioned in the intro, uh, the collection of sports writing from uh, Sports Illustrated. And, you know, uh, for a long time I've had a great sports writing football and baseball book, and finally hockey got recognized, and that's probably on my shelf. And I just wonder maybe just real quickly what role you had in that. You have many stories in it. Uh, did you did you work at all in putting that together? Um, uh, did you? No, I, I did not work at all on that book it it was a complete surprise to me, actually. Okay. Kostya Kennedy edited it. Uh, right. If we go back uh, a little more than a year, and it's still available, there's a big hardcover book, uh, Sports Illustrated Hockey, uh, which I wrote the the forward to and have some pieces in there. Uh, and it's it's a big uh, coffee table book, and, and there's some... There's some stories in there, and uh, the funny thing about that book to me is that I'm in a, a collection with William Faulkner, who wrote about a game uh, for the magazine, the Rangers-Canadians game that he attended in Madison Square Garden in, I believe, 1955. And William Faulkner, the bard of the South, writing about hockey. So it was interesting to me having studied Light in August, Faulkner's novel, extensively in high school, uh, that he and I would be in the same anthology. Uh, you know, kind of a little bit of an alphabetical thing, you know, Farber, Faulkner, yeah, <laughs> so I'm, you know, there we were, so I got a big kick out of that. But Hockey Talk, uh, I, I guess uh, four or five pieces of mine have been included, but I had nothing to do with that. Okay, we will get you out on this. I promise I ask everyone this. Uh, you just had a piece in the current SI about goaltenders. Uh, it was a really great piece. I just wonder, and maybe this is a general second-half question, what are some storylines or stories that you're going to pre- be pursuing here in the second half? What interests you as a 
hockey writer, beat writer, uh, what are you going to look to see play out in the second half of the season? Well, um, the, the St. Louis Blues interest me because it's rare that a coach has that kind of impact on a team, and this is a very hard-working team. And I'm particularly taken with David Backus. He's a great center. Is, yeah. yeah, who is like Milan Lucic in Boston, is kind of a new breed of power forward. And uh, I, you know, not a classic goal scorer, but just a bull and just a really terrific player. I and mean, he was fabulous at the Olympics. Kudos to USA Hockey for identifying him very early in the process. He was one of these no-brain selections for the team and uh, all that uh, he has done. So I hope to, at some point, we look at the Blues. Right now I'm working on a story that involves the Boston Bruins. And uh, I was happened to be at the White House yesterday, which put me up, uh, one up on Tim Thomas. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, there, there's all kinds of things out there uh, that I hope we get to before the start of the playoffs. And uh, and I'm looking forward to it. I'd like to go visit the Los Angeles Kings uh, because I think Anze Kopitar uh, is an important player who might be able to you know, have a good second half under, under Daryl Sutter and, and lead some fortunes there. Uh, so these are the kinds of things I'll be looking at, and I just hope that I don't get involved in eighth-place mania because we should be looking higher, set our sights higher in hockey and in everything, Steve. Well, I could literally do this all day. This was a huge honor, and I really appreciate you doing this with us and giving us as much time as you did. I hope you enjoy your time in in the nation's capital, and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, we have to thank Michael Farber, NHL Hall of Famer, for joining us on the show today. I I could be wrong, but, well, no, Peter King is in the NFL Hall of Fame, isn't he? So he's not our first Hall of Famer. Yeah, and if you count Duff McKagan, although he's not in it yet. Not quite. Not quite. And he hasn't, show, and he hasn't quite been on yet, technically. Well, right, right. <laughs> so, all right, we are back from, like I said, thank you, Michael Farber, Quick book club update and two things to do. Uh, one, Michael Farber was on the show today as part of us kind of closing off uh, a mini run that we did with the Sports Illustrated Hockey Talk from hat tricks to headshots and everything in between. It's a paperback book that's available anywhere you buy books. It's also on the Kindle. It's on iBooks and it's on the Nook as well. And uh, Don and I spent some time looking that over the last few weeks, and we highly recommend it. And Michael Fiber talked a little bit there about kind of where it came from, and uh, so that's it for that. So that means we got a hole we need to fill, and we're going to start the book club. Now, just so you know, next week is going to be our football spectacular, Super Bowl spectacular show, second one. Right. We're finally getting to the point where we're starting to do things twice here. Right? That's right. So we've had our second season premiere. We're going to have our second Sports Spectacular. You know, pretty soon we'll have our second baseball preview show. It's the second time a bell has rang during the, uh, <laughs> during the book club update. So we probably won't get into the book club much next week. But we have a book picked out for the month of February. I'm going to probably butcher this name. 
No, I won't. It's easy enough. Gene Wojciechowski, who is an analyst on ESPN.com, has written a book called The Last Great Game, Duke versus Kentucky and the 2.1 seconds that changed basketball. Now, I was looking around uh, for a book that we could use for February. And we're kind of in the part of the year where not a lot new comes out because everything came out kind of for the holiday season and then there's kind of a lull. Well, this happens to be a book that just was released instantly or recently. And it interested me a little bit. One, because almost anyone who's a sports fan can remember where they were when Christian Leitner hit that shot. And if you don't remember where you were, you've certainly seen it, right? right? Everyone's seen Grant Hill throw the ball the length of the court. Christian Leitner catch it, dribble, and make a shot that allowed Duke to go on to the Final Four. They defeated Kentucky that day, and it was a matchup of two really great coaches and Coach Coach K and Rick Paterno. So I reached out to Mr. Wojciechowski and asked him if there was a publisher that I could contact. That's usually how this works with the book club. Usually we go through the publisher, and then we get a hold of a copy of the book, and we exchanged some emails, and Mr. Wojciechowski apologized to me and said that he didn't have a copy left to give me. I said, no problem. I'll buy it on the iPad, and it'll be a, an easy way for me and my partner to share it. No problem. The next day, he emails me, Don, and he says that he felt so bad that I had an iPad it that he went to the bookstore and bought me a copy. <laughs> and he was going to sign it and send it out. Oh, so nice. We got to make sure we do a good job with the book club this month because this guy's gone above and beyond the call of duty. He's already promised to join us when we're done reading the book, so we have that commitment. We're not going to have another Ian O'Connor situation on our hands here. Right. We spent the whole month plugging his book, and then he blew us off. Right. So Gene Wojciechowski is going to join us at the end of the month. The book, again, is called The Last Great Game, Duke versus Kentucky and the 2.1 Seconds to Change Basketball. It's available at a bookstore near you. There's also a Kindle version. I know there's an iBooks version. I haven't checked on the Nook, but I'm sure there is. And I'm about 50 pages in. I've read about the uh, two coaches, basically, is where it starts. I've enjoyed it. It seems to flow really well, and I'm interested. And for those of you from Buffalo, don't forget, a Western New York native made that shot. You know, right, Christian right. Leitner's yep. from Angola, New York. So check it out. Pick it up. Read it with us. I'm going to start a new thread on the message board. I'm also going to put a post up on Tumblr. You guys can talk to us either way. And follow Gene on Twitter. He is real easily found at GenoESPN. So that's it. That's the book club. That's where we're going. We just finished with Hockey Talk, and we're moving on to the last great game, Duke versus Kentucky in the 2.1 seconds of change basketball. Let's take a break, and Don, we get to come back and talk to the great Duff McKagan. Our next guest is from Seattle, Washington, and is a true renaissance man of the 21st century. He is best known as a musician, having played bass for Guns N' Roses, Velvet Revolver, Loaded, 10-Minute Warning, and even a br brief stint in Alice in Chains. Besides music, he has become interested in economics, writing, riding bicycles, and training in the martial arts. His writing has appeared in Playboy on ESPN.com and a weekly column that he publishes for SeattleWeekly.com. He has recently published a book called It's So Easy and Other Lies, 
a warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Duff McKagan. How are you doing today, Mr. McKagan? That's quite a resume. It's pretty incredible. I, I don't think I've ever quite heard it read all like that. Um, yeah, mountain bikes. Uh, you, you said bicycles. I don't oh, even okay. think of myself as riding bicycles. It's not like a huffy. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I think of a bicycle as that thing with like the huge front wheel and the small back wheel. The thing that wheel. we used to put our baseball cards in the spokes? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for doing this. I mean, I know it's a little, it's a little different. I mean, it's a sports podcast, and I'm sure many of the people who will listen to this will kind of, you know, think, oh, Duff sports a little odd, but really, it's not. I mean, I just had finished. I just finished reading your book. I got it for Christmas, and um, you know, as I was reading it, one of the things that interests me most is just. F- finding out all the things that you're interested in and how diverse and different your background is. And one of the things you mentioned in the book is how much you love Seattle sports. And uh, as soon as I read that, I thought, you know, we got to get him on the podcast. It'd just be so cool. Then I did some research and I found that you write a column for ESPN.com and I reached out to the PR there. Um, So it really does connect when you think about it. Um, First thing I want to ask is, you know the book's been out for a little bit, and uh, I just wonder, as a as a as a first time author of a book, how have you liked the experience? You know, all right from writing it to promoting it to getting responses from it. What has it been like, and how have you enjoyed the experience? Well, um, okay, I guess the first thing was you know the experience of, of actually writing a book. You know, and um, I was given a column at the Seattle Weekly, sort of really out of nowhere um, about three and a half years ago and it's a weekly column uh, and uh, there I was kind of dropped into this this other sort of limelight people are reading the words reading the thoughts that that you have and you have to make them concise and somewhat interesting and um, um, you know the first week I wrote that column I was pretty terrified there I was I was on the road with Velvet Revolver playing in, in front of a lot of people every night but writing a column is this this sort of um, singular sport, if you will. You know, it's it's just you and your thoughts and your intellect being put out there for people to sort of dissect. And um, so the first week's column, um, I I sort of nailed it. You know, and I I didn't just nail it it being a, a you know readable column, but I, I kind of nailed what what my voice was going to be, and I got comfortable with that that voice if you will, pretty, pretty quick. And, um, and I found in writing those columns from week to week that I could, um, articulate my, my thoughts much better in the written word than I ever could talking about it. And, um, about six weeks into that Seattle weekly thing, I was given a, a finance column offered one at, at, uh, at Playboy. And so suddenly I had two deadlines a week and I was writing a ton. I was writing 2000 words a week um, that were, you know, coming out every week and, and they had to be good and, and edited and complete and all of that. And I started writing these sort of other stories that weren't really, they, they certainly weren't right for Playboy and they were maybe a little too personal for the Seattle Weekly. And, uh, and it started with a letter to my older seven siblings. Um, and it was a private letter that I, I wrote to them. And uh, I found in one of the, the letters to my oldest brother, John, I thanked him for bringing my mom to the hospital when I was in there. And, and it suddenly just stopped me, that thought. 
you know, how did I get to the hospital? How, you know, what was the deal? What, and I started um, writing about my journey into sort of drug addiction and alcoholism. How did I get there? How did a good kid like me playing in punk rock bands, how did I get from that point A to being in a hospital bed? And uh, so that the whole process of writing that book just sort of revealed itself to me. You don't write a book all at once. I didn't have a complete thought. I just wrote sort of thousand or two thousand words at a time sort of like columns mm. and it became this book and um and then you know getting a book deal and all of that was a whole another business business experience and um but then you know the book came out and doing the the book tour around it and doing the press around it was a was pretty great experience and 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 then people read it they read this book they read about you i you know do i tell my whole story do i tell everything about me no um you know i know what not to reveal about myself and keep my life private enough i have a wife and two kids you know i got to keep that private and and cool um but people know a lot more about me and uh, i think it was successful in the things that i tried to highlight in the book which was this journey it can happen to anybody you know um especially the the, the sickness that i got and how i got out of it and, uh, you know, I tell rock and roll stories in there, but it's not necessarily a a rock and It's definitely not a rock and roll tell-all or, or anything. I, and I just sort of challenged myself to write a, a different sort of book. You know, one thing I'll say about the book is it's incredibly honest. And I really appreciated that as a reader. You know, I felt like I felt like you were really letting letting me in, you know, as the reader and getting to see a side of you, things that, if you wouldn't have revealed them, I would have never known. And I really appreciated that. And one thing that really struck me as I was reading uh, the last few pages of the book was, you know, you had written uh, in the acknowledgments, you know, about your daughters and about how someday they would read that book. And I'm sure the thought crossed your mind as you were writing that. How hard was it for you to put to let go of some of these things and put some of them on paper, knowing that someday you know, your daughters were going to read this and certainly have a lot of questions that they might want to ask you. Was it difficult? Um, you know, we do honesty here in, in, uh, inside of the four walls of my house, and um, it's got to start with me. And um, so even when my, my girls were much younger in, in grade school, and you know, I mean, everything's available to them. YouTube at a click of a, you know, they just move a pinky over and they can see their dad in 1992 stumbling on the stage, you know. And, and they, they would ask me questions like, uh, hey, Dad, how come you never drink wine when the grown-ups are drinking wine? And it started with a simple question like that, like when my oldest daughter was in the third grade. And it gave me the opportunity to tell her, well, you know, I told her in, in sort of like a little kid story, you know, well, I, I used to drink a wine and I drank a lot and I couldn't stop, you know? And I, and if I, I think if I, so I stopped because it got sort of dangerous. So uh, I stopped and that's, that's why I don't do it now. And I don't want to start again because I don't want to do that again. Okay, dad, that sounds like a good idea. Right. Um, you know, it starts with the innocent sort of stories and then you start filling in, um, the blank, you know, then they, they start, they come home from middle school and they, Hey, Dad, uh, you know, 
we heard that you were, you know, crazy, you know. <laughs> and, and, well, yeah, I kind of was. I, I actually went into, yeah, maybe I was I was insane for a while. Um, and uh, it's part of my, my journey. I, I don't want you to go through it. You might have some of that thing in you, and uh, we'll, we'll have to talk about that later on. And uh, then writing these stories for, for the book, I would, um, you know, I would sit and talk to my, my daughters, and, you know, I'm writing about this. What do you think about it? You know, um, I wouldn't, you know, they're a little young now to, to, to read my book. They, they won't read it. You know, they're right. just, I'm their dad. You know, I'm, I'm the embarrassing. They're not going to read my, my book right. um, yet, but they will. They will someday. And um, they're going to prop, they're going to know there's not going to be much of a surprise um, in there. And I didn't, you know, I think it's a, I kept a lot, you know. I didn't. I didn't talk about the chicks and the, the thing and all of that because I don't think it's part of the story I was trying to tell. And um, I kept it about me and kind of me taking responsibility for my my side of the street, you know. And uh, hopefully that's what they'll take out of it. Like, okay, well my my dad at least took, um, you know, uh, for his own actions, he took responsibility for all of it. Or, or as much as he could, you know, and uh, maybe hopefully that's what they take away from it. You know, I actually read the book on my iPad, and yeah. uh, you know that's something that five years ago or maybe more, you know, wouldn't it wouldn't have happened. And I just wonder, and and a lot of your writing has been on the internet, you know, Playboy dot com yeah. or, or Seattle Weekly dot com and ESPN dot com and things like that. Um, in the twenty first century. You know, do you, if if you, I don't know, started writing twenty years ago, do you think that you would have enjoyed it as much as you do? You know, having all this technology now at your fingers, and and what are your thoughts, kind of, of people reading books instead of holding it in your hand, in their hands? They're holding this, you know, electronic device and and flipping virtual pages yeah. around. Well, I you know I have a Kindle, um, and I'm an old school book guy. I have a library. Uh, with with books in it and and I'm so old school I guess that I'll read the book on Kindle and I'll still buy it so it's up on my bookshelf so I, I like to see that tactile thing you know that I that I read but um you know you, you got to be careful where you, you read a book on a device and um, I still think of it as it's it's not just a digital file. I think of it as somebody's, you know, work. Somebody sat and toiled and and wrote this thing, and it's a, it's a beautiful piece of work, you know. If it's a good, good book, and it's not just a file that I can discard, and it's gone because it's you know you read a book and that fills your soul for well the rest of your life if it's if it's a good book hopefully, at least fills in parts of it just like music does and. Um, but I think it, you know I don't I wouldn't have been offered probably a try at a column if it wasn't SeattleWeekly.com, you know they don't have to invest that much in you um, because if your column's over they don't have to create a space for you in the in the weekly paper they can let you kind of fail on the online version first before they start adding you in so I was given that chance so. Um, you know, technology as far as writers, I mean, there's a ton of blogs and, you know, there's, I'm sure there's a ton of 
people that shouldn't be writing online, you know. <laughs> um, but the, I think it's also uh, given a chance for some writers that maybe wouldn't have otherwise written um, for them to rise to the to the top. One last thing before we get into kind of music and sports a little bit. I wanted to ask you about Twitter. You're a guy who seems to enjoy it quite a bit. You're at Duff McKagan, and I'm just curious, you know, Twitter's had a tough weekend, uh, especially in the sports world with the premature announcement of uh, the death of Joe Paterno, and, you know, they've had kind of a tough go this weekend. But as far as you're concerned, what do you like and what, what don't you like about it? Well, um... What do I like about Twitter? I, I just think, you know, social media, um, in, in the days now that we see newspapers going under, and there's a lot more, well, seattleweekly.com, that's where we're getting our news. We're getting our news from Yahoo, you know, and we're getting our news from, news from these, these um, homepages of so many different um, websites. Um, so, therefore... Since this is our new newspaper, I think we have to also rise to the occasion. There was, you know, when newspapers started back in, in America in the 1600s, there was a, a blank sheet in the back, and the, the little newspaper in the village would, would be printed, and there'd be, they'd print up, you know, four or five or ten copies, and it would be passed around. And people would read the stories, and they would actually write in on, the, on that black, blank page on the back. And they would you know, it would be a comment to an editorial or a comment to a piece in, in the paper, and they would write in handwriting, you know, and, uh, and they, they would sign their comment with their name and their, their address, and then they would pass the paper on, and these things would circulate through the village. And, but people took responsibility for their comments, is my point, and they put their name and they put their address. And, uh, and then we you know, got to the modern-day newspaper, whether it's the editorials and, and the letters to the editor, and, and still you have to print your name. They print your name and your, and your address and, or whatever. Um, so nowadays when Twitter and, and comments to, to articles in Seattle Weekly or, or whatever it is, ESPN, you know, you see a lot of uh, people post um, anonymous, and they'll say, maybe sometimes they'll say something um, derogatory and that that stuff I hope gets fleshed out and that people I'm, I'm trying to you know do my little part in, in, in raising the, the bar a little bit in social media um, but Twitter's great for you know to the other side of that Twitter's great for when you, your band's on tour you know saying your uh, saying what your tour, tour dates are saying right. you're here in town um, you can give away tickets and, and that kind of thing. And, and um, when the dollar for advertising is is getting slimmer, you can do it yourself a lot on Twitter and, and Facebook and whatnot. Yeah, that's it's all obviously a great way for self, self-promotion self for sure. We use it that way quite a bit here at, at the Sportscasters. Sportscasters are here with Duff McKagan. It's almost surreal. Bass player from Guns N' Roses and Velvet Revolver and Loaded. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Duff McKagan. You know, the very first tapes I bought, uh, my dad took me to the, I think it was The Wall was called back then, and I bought the Skid Row tape, and I bought the Appetite tape. And, nice. and a couple years later, you guys were on a big stadium tour with Metallica, and you came to my town. 
Buffalo, New York. Played at Rich Stadium, it was called at the time. And uh, it was my first concert. My my mom said I could go as long as my dad would take me, and he, he agreed, kind of had to drag him there a little bit. But the coolest thing was watching my dad get hit in the head with a hamburger because there was a huge uh, a huge food fight at the show. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll never forget sitting next to my dear old dad and seeing a hamburger come and whap him in the side of the head. But uh, Ah, those things, yeah. You know, and... <laughs> I, I remember playing those stadiums, you know, especially like the first time through and, and me being a huge NFL fan. Um, I was just a fan of, I mean, I would go back to the, the like the locker rooms and, and like, man, you know, I, I remember this, whatever game, you know, and here I am playing the stadium. Um, so as a sports fan playing those stadiums and or playing the basketball arenas and stuff, I'm, I'm just, you know, while everybody else is watching the band, I'm sort of envisioning such and such game I remember seeing on TV played at this place. Right. Is there is there a venue that's really interesting? Is there a venue that sticks out as like you know one where you're like, yeah, this is awesome. You know what I mean? Like, is there one a holy grail for you, so to speak? Um, I mean, there's a ton of them, and and for uh, a, as many different reasons. Um, you know, playing Wembley Stadium. Mm-hmm. is is awesome uh uh playing up uh, where where the download festival is now it used to be called donnington and that that's donnington racetrack and and if you grew up in the 70s like i did you had the the, the hot wheels track and it had the dunlop t- tire over the track you know the half a tire over the track and that's that's donnington racetrack and so i grew up to this this hot wheels version of this place that in 1988, I went and played, and I, I really didn't put the two things together until I got there. And so all these like fe- feelings of kiddom come back to you. You know, I'm I'm playing that place that I played Hot Wheels, you know, uh, too. And um, you know, playing the Kingdom for me, uh, I saw Led Zeppelin there, and uh, you know, my my football team started there, the Seahawks. And this and is I where Bo Jackson ran over. Uh... Yeah, Bosworth. Right. Yeah, 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 and um, and I, I got to play there, and and uh, um, you know JFK and the Rose Bowl. I mean, all these great Texas Stadium and um, all these amazing places. I've seen great football games on TV as a kid growing up. Suddenly, I was I was playing it, and uh, yeah. But I don't know if there's one. You know, I've been asked that a bunch. Um, you know, usually those gigs that were the biggest gigs for me were were like club gigs when we were really on the rise, like playing the marquee in, in London or selling out the Troubadour in, in L.A. or playing the Ritz in New York. Well, from those humble beginnings, you are officially, well, maybe not officially just yet, but you have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I have to congratulate you on that, an incredible honor. Uh, th- I think the music world is kind of divided on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, some people maybe think it's a little bit silly. You know, some people think it's hollow ground. As someone who's preparing to go into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, is that is that an honor that you that you hold really near and dear to your heart, or is it something that you kind of think, well, well, you know, whatever, I'll show up and have dinner, and you know? Yeah. Um, well, it's you know it. Unlike sports, sports, the Hall of Fame is, you know, I, I back it, you know. Um, you, you know, there's stats, though, and there's, there's numbers, and you have this, this 
uh, career and, you know, somebody, you know, you, you get put on a ballot and your peers vote for you going into the Hall of Fame. And, and in um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's, first of all, it's not a competitive sport. Music is, can, can never be classified as that. There's a lot of great bands and, and, um, and artists and people do things different and they challenge and they do all kinds of things. And, um, you know, when there's a Grammys award or, or American music awards or whatever, and one band wins over another, it's not that they're better or their numbers were better. It's just, they were more popular that year or whatever. Whoever, who knows why some bands win and some, some don't. And so it's always been kind of this really bizarre thing for me. Um, um, it's not a competitive sport. And then going into the Hall of, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year, it's not, so it's not, it, therefore, it, it's saying everything I just said, um, you don't ever try to get an award or, or hope for an award. It is sort of, um, it's an odd deal because, you, you know, artists don't ever try to compete against each other that I know of. And um, um, it's an, but, but saying all that, it, it's also, it's an honor because the, I saw on Twitter and on Facebook and on social media how much the fans of that band were into us going into the Hall of Fame. So therefore, if it's important to the fans, then it is important. And you have to treat it with respect and, you know, grace and, um, and all of those things. Because, I mean, the band, without fans, there is no band. And uh, that's, that's the most important thing, is, is the people that got you there. They went out and bought your records. They came to your show. You know, they, they bought a T-shirt. They supported your thing in all aspects and made it able, made, you know, made your career um, a thing that could happen. You know, without people buying your stuff, you can't go out and tour and you can't go do the thing, and it's, you know, it's the fans who did it all. We just wrote the songs, and, and we were the band that we were, and people believed in it, and that's pretty amazing in itself. You know, between now and the induction ceremony, there's going to be all kinds of speculation, and people are going to wonder what the night's going to be like, and is Axel going to be there? Is the band going to play together? And all kinds of things that I know you can't answer at this point. Yeah. But when you close your eyes and, and you think about that night, what would be perfect for you? What What would make that night perfect? Um, I you know I haven't really <laughs> I I've kind of stopped myself from thinking about what would um, that that kind of stuff. You know, what would make it perfect? I I don't know. I think just us. Um, you know, the five of us, or what? How you know? Maybe the seven of us uh, inducted, whatever seven, it yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, if we can get up on stage together and uh, you know look each other in the eyes, or or, or not even that, just accept the award with some grace and some thanks to the to the to the fans, and um, um, and if that's all that we achieve, I think it it'll be great. If you know everything works out and somehow the seven of you do end up on a stage in Cleveland and, and you get a chance to play together. Is there a song that, you know, that sticks out that you, you mean, usually they play three. I, I, you don't have to name three, but is there one that you just, you always think, man, if we could ever get back together, that's the one I just love to play one more time with those guys. Um, 
Well, I don't, you know, I don't really, uh, I hate to keep saying that, but this, but I, I don't really think in, in those terms because a lot of the songs from, and, you know, we, we've played in, in Velvet Revolver, so I don't have an itch to play one particular song over another. Um, you know, if we played, it would be, it would be probably a really great, great thing. And, uh, and if we didn't, it, that'd be okay too. So I haven't even thought, um, I know what some of my friends, you know, uh, have like, dude, if you guys go and play, you gotta go play. It's so easy. And night train and that's it. Boom. <laughs> you walk off the stage, you know, I'm like, okay. Yeah. I could see how that'd be impactful. Um, I, I, I don't mean to sound unemotional about it, but I can't let myself get too far down that sort of rabbit hole. Right. It's just, uh, you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm a, I'm a grown up dude. I got, I got kids. I've, uh, you know, worked through my life as best as I could up to this point and, um, saw where there was resentment and where there's probably resentment at me and all that kind of stuff and tried to deal with it. And, um, I'm a, you know, I'm grown up and, um, um, I'm going to just, I'm going to show up. I'm going and, um, I'm going to show up and, um, I'm going to be there and I'm going to be grateful for the reasons I am there. And, and that's it. Beyond that, I can't really assume or think. You know, very recently in a somewhat similar situation, uh, you mentioned Velvet Revolver and you guys were able to get on the stage together as a band again with Scott Weiland and, and play four songs at a Bedefin concert. And I just wonder, how did that feel? Um, did you enjoy the experience? And do you think that that lineup maybe because of how the night went, do you see maybe more nights like that in the future, or do you think that that was a kind of a one-off thing? Well, it, it was a, definitely, it was a one-off because, um, it was a f old, uh, it was a friend of all of ours, the, the guy who passed away. And, uh, um, to say that I enjoyed the experience with, it, it was really somber. You know, it was a, it was a somber event and there, there's kids involved that are, you know, that that's who we we're raising money for this, this right. um, John O'Brien's kid. You know, one's not even born. It's a, the one kid's still a, a large bump in, in a mom's, you know, womb. And, uh, so it's very somber and we're all parents. It was kind of a no brainer. Us getting back together. It wasn't maybe if we were getting back together to do a show at some festival in Europe, um, it would probably be different and the pressures would be different and, and all of that. This was, there was no pressure. Um, there was no drama. It was just, uh, you know, we knew, um, you know, people would, it would, the, the, the tickets were expensive for the thing, which is good, you know, and, and a lot of them sold, which is great for, for these kids. And, uh, they, they just kind of thought the original lineup, the story behind that would cause enough, fervor that people would buy these hundred dollar tickets and go to the show and uh it was all for a very great um yet somber cause but uh so it wasn't maybe the rock and roll event that um a lot of people thought it was going to be um it was just us playing and, and it, it was great we were it was you know it was powerful that band it's i forgot how kick-ass that band is you know it's yeah. a great that original lineup's killer you know, um, I, but uh, anything beyond anything beyond that um, wasn't even we didn't talk. It would be a little, uh, especially then, to sort of 
hey, so uh, you guys want to do more gigs? Or, <laughs> right, you know, just wasn't the right time and a place for right. that. Yeah. yeah. You know, I we don't hide the fact here that we're very big Pearl Jam fans. Um, I've actually been to over 70 Pearl Jam shows. Um, and uh, I recently watched a documentary that Cameron Crowe made about Pearl Jam called Pearl Jam 20. And uh, in the very beginning of that, uh, he talked a little bit about kind of his theory as to why Seattle, of all places, has been the place to kind of, you know, turn out all this musical talent. I mean, you can go all the way back to Jimi Hendrix and Hart and, yeah. you know, then up to the 90s and Alice in Chains and Guns and Roses, or uh, Alice in Chains and, you know, obviously you and Guns and Roses and yeah. all kinds of stuff. And I just wonder, what's your theory? Why, why do you think Seattle, of all places, lended itself to creating all of this great music that will live really forever? Yeah, well, I think, you know, back in the in the 80s, you know, before the Internet and all of that, and before Microsoft and, you know, there was Boeing there, but um, in the 80s and before, Seattle was really up there, you know? It was thought of as people still living in TVs or, you know, um, lumberjacks and whatnot. And I think as such, the we knew we were thought of as up there and um, musicians there just created a scene, a self-fulfilling, you know, little scene. Um, and bands really kind of supported each other and, and used, used each other's gear and, and uh, rehearsed in each other's basements. And, and, and it does rain and there's weather and it's cold and, and people are inside down in the basement playing maybe a lot more than if you're in Florida or Las Vegas or, or Southern California. I mean, great bands from Southern California, don't, so I don't mean to mix that up. But uh, you, I think that's my theory. Anyhow, people just spent a lot more time inside playing. Yeah, this, and, that's what he and, mentioned too, just kind of the weather and, you know, just the community of it. Yeah. Yeah. The sportscasters are here with Duff McKagan. I hope I didn't cut you off there. Uh, former bass player from Guns N' Roses. Currently, you can find his work on uh, SeattleWeekly.com, Playboy.com, ESPN.com. I'd be remiss. This is a sports show if I didn't write, ask you a couple questions about sports. You know, you're a big fan of Seattle sports. You mentioned it in the book. You had a chance to play the national anthem or or play a song, a loaded song, at um, a Seattle Seahawks game. Uh, Seahawks kind of got off to a slow start, surged a little bit towards the end of the season. What are your thoughts on Pete Carroll's team and how he's done at kind of rebuilding what he took over a few years ago now? Well, okay, so we're, what, two years into it? Yep. Um, and that team did, We number one, we don't we don't have a quarterback. No. Um, we don't. And, and I think um, Pete has got that team – believing in in themselves the defense certainly does and and the offensive line is is starting to really um find themselves and um and but i think the jury's still a little bit out with with pete you know seattle probably of um seattle's a town that will give a coach um a bit more time than definitely like I mean, Jim Moore didn't last year, but right. but uh, you know, Pete Carroll is a is a positive force. You can't say he isn't, and uh, but he hasn't been proven in the NFL yet. He hasn't proven himself, 
And uh, so we, we know that. And um, there's just hope. And right now, yeah, we, we, we started to find ourselves a, as a team uh, at the end of the season, and then we ran into the 49ers, who were just they were just much more of a complete team, you know. Right. And we were playing really well at that point, even without, a, you know, a go-to quarterback. Tavares, I mean, he, he started, he even started to come around a bit, you know, at the end of the season. But he's, he's not that, uh, you know, top tier. Or even maybe, even, you know, he's not even a second tier quarterback yet. I think the big story this offseason for the Seahawks is going to be what to do with Marshawn Lynch. Do you think that, you know, what would you like to see happen? Do you want him to be a part of this team going forward? Or, you know, is your kind of take on running backs? You know, they're kind of a dime a dozen. You can find one here or there or wherever. They might be a dime a dozen, uh, except when you get to Marshawn Lynch. I think he's got to stay. You know, I think, yeah, he's a big part of our team. He's a big part of the locker room, um, uh, I think, at least. Uh, um yeah, I hope there's no controversy about Marshawn. How hard has it been to go on without the Sonics? And do you follow the Oklahoma City Thunder, or you just forget that? The NBA is dead to me. <laughs> it's dead to me, too. We had the Buffalo Braves, and they're now the Clippers, and so it's dead to me, too. But Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just the way that, you know, Seattle was such a an NBA town, and uh uh, for us not to have a team and for our team to be taken away from us in the, in the, and especially in the fashion that, that, that it went down, um, was brutal. And it was really tough as a song. I mean, I'm a lifetime, lifelong songs fan. Um, and for that to happen and suddenly not have a team and see the key arena, just kind of sit empty and, uh, um, it was really a hit, and and no, you don't pull for Oklahoma City because um, that's the you know that's the place that took our team, and you can say it's all the owners and the thing and Stern and all of that, but uh, we, we, the the end game is we don't have a team. Um, I don't care about all that stuff. We don't have a team, so I haven't been able to really follow the NBA. I I, I think I've floundered around a little bit trying to find a team because I do love the game of basketball. I love the NBA game. Um, but I, I, it's hard for me. You know, like this year, well, okay, with the Clippers? I don't know. Maybe I'll find some fanship in, in following the Clippers, but it's not my team. Right. Well, Blake Griffin's pretty cool, and Chris Paul's pretty cool. So, Yeah, Blake yeah. Griffin. I, I got to hang out with him a bit last summer, was it, I think? And... Um, um, he's a bad dude. He's, a, he's a, just a good man, a smart, smart guy, funny dude, um, and he's one of the fellas, you know. Right. Uh, and um, uh, likable guy, likable team, I think. And uh, uh, but still, it's not my team. And uh, hopefully, one day we'll we'll get a team back. Um, but yeah, that was tough. And you know, it, it's tough being a Seattle fan. But that's what you do if you're from a city and you follow these teams your whole life. You know, I still look forward to um, you know, um, spring training. You know, the Mariners. Right. Who knows what's going to happen? We don't. You know, we're in with the Angels and the Rangers. Um, not much is going to happen. You can assume for the next couple of years, but uh, it's still your team. And they have a beautiful stadium. I mean, it's 
I think it's the best out. I, I going on tour. That's one thing I I get to do. Um, you know, I don't get a day off very often out there, but I'll go to. You know, if I'm playing in Boston and I'm playing at at nine, I'll go see the first three innings at right. Fenway if I can. I'll go to Cubby Stadium, Wrigley Field, and I'll go to games where I can. Go into the the new uh, you know Baltimore Stadium, Camden Yards, yeah. Camden Yards, it's beautiful. Have you ever and been to PNC Park in Pittsburgh? That's beautiful. I haven't been there yet. I've been to the San Diego one, which is really right, cool. Petco. Yeah, right in the middle of the city. And, Big uh, one. But I still, I think, I think um, Safeco is uh, is the best one out there. Yeah, it's a jewel. Uh, it you mentioned that you were going to be doing uh, sports awards or something tomorrow. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, Northwest Sports Awards. Um, and I'm presenting, a, I don't know what the, what the name of the award is. It's um, like Sportsman of the Year. Um, but I'm presenting with Jay Buhner, which is oh, huge, cool. huge for me. I've, I've never met him. He's just Jay Buhner to me, you know, like legend. And uh, so uh, it's he and I presenting. It'll be, uh, it'll be fun. It's an honor for me. You know, I get to, that's one thing, being a rock band, you get to go do this stuff now, you know? Yeah. Like, geek out. You know, I can't talk around these guys. I don't, I don't know what to say. <laughs> you know? Uh, Jay Buhner, remember that one time? You know, I don't know what to say, don't Like Chris Farley talking to uh, Paul exactly. McCartney, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll totally be that guy. Right. Yeah. yeah, actually, I was at, I don't know if you're, well, you got to be Benaroya Hall in Seattle. Yeah, uh, Benaroya Hall. Yeah, that yeah. was the one place in Seattle that I actually seen Pearl Jam. And, you know, long story short, I ended up basically standing right next to Eddie Vedder, and I just froze. I blew it. <laughs> Didn't say a thing. My knees started to shake, and I kind of looked at him, and this elevator opened, and he got on, and my brain was telling me to get on the elevator with him, but my legs wouldn't move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, when I when I told you, one, one of my friends said, you should go out and play It's So Easy and Night Train, that's it, Boom. Uh, it was one of the guys in Pearl Jam who said that. Oh, sick! Yeah. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess. Was it because I noticed in your book you mentioned Jeff Ament a few times? Was it him? Yeah. It could have been him. Could have been him. Yeah. Could have been somebody else. <laughs> could have been. Could have been somebody else. Could have been. Uh, last thing, and I'll get you out of here. Can I get a Super Bowl prediction from you? What do you think? Uh, Super Bowl prediction. I just think. I mean, man, I, I, I've written about Eli a couple times this year in ESPN. I just. That guy's like the, he doesn't look like, you know, he looks like kind of a broken down jalopy, you know, but he finds a way <laughs> to, he does, you know, and he's, he's, uh, he's, he's not great, you know, in, in, in the, in the, uh, interviews and, and, and all of that. And he's kind of awkward and on the field and, but, uh, he finds a way to, to win and, uh, his mechanics might look awful, but he gets the things done and he, he's just one of those guys who just plays football and uh but saying all of that i just think um patriots I think new england's too much yeah could be i I can't stand the patriots yeah yeah you know people from the northeast I, a lot of people just can't stand boston yeah i'm sick of boston I, I get that i hear that a lot i like if i were to like i like the celtics and it, and it must be something about boston uh being the same latitude as, as seattle i mean i i love that city and i like i go to fenway i go to yankees you know i go i 
But Yankees are they they've always been the big bully, you right. know? Yeah, so, yeah. Absolutely. And uh so uh I, I don't have a problem with the Red Sox, you know, when the when the Mariners are out, you know. I've pulled for the Sox before. And uh, I know this is this is uh, treacherous territory I'm getting into right now because people write into my ESPN column, um, and you know they're pretty boisterous out there in the Northeast. Uh, and uh, you know I I like the Patriots um, when my when my Hawks are out, um, so I don't mind the the team I, the, um, at all. It doesn't doesn't bother me. I I just think and but I can look at this whole thing at, from the outside. And just logically look at the two teams, and it just seems to me that um, New England is going to. They're going to take it. All right, so you could literally say anything to this. If you said a cooking show, it wouldn't surprise me. If you said, you know, you're going to start wearing jewelry like Mr. T, it wouldn't surprise me. What what's what's in store for Duff McKagan? What what can we look forward to, fans of Duff? What can we look forward to in the future? Um, well, I never know what's going to be in my future. I'm going to be writing. I'll be writing my columns. Um, you want to plug them? Let us know where we can find everything. Seattleweekly.com on Thursdays. ESPN.com on Wednesdays. Um, my paperback book is coming out in March, the paperback version. Um, so that's another big push they're, they're going to do. And um, I'm going to go play some gigs, which... The thing I always do, I'll go play festivals again. I'm going to go play Costa Rica and, and Mexico uh, in April uh, after the Hall of Fame thing. And um, and that's it for now. And uh, I never know what's going to happen next. Well, Duff McKagan, I, I couldn't ask for more. It was an absolute thrill on my end. I hope, uh, hope you enjoyed it, too. It went by really quick. Hope I didn't keep yeah. you too long. But thank you very much for doing this. All right, man. Thanks. Thank you very much. Easy. Okay. Bye, guys. Well, that was freaking awesome. Yeah, you don't have a uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer come on every day. All right, so we have to thank Duff McKagan. We have to thank Michael Farber, and we have to thank S.L. Price for joining us on the show today. I have to remind you to check us up on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at sports underscore casters. You can email us anytime, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Our blog, where we put our longer pieces, is the sportscasters.blogspot.com. And, Don, I will announce this now, but I will do a live blog for the Super Bowl this year. Oh, very nice. Uh, to put there. Also, you can find us on Tumblr, and we're going to be using this quite a bit. I've had fun with it so far. It looks really pretty. And you can find us there, the sportscasters.tumblr.com. And you can find all this information. We updated it last week after the show. You can find all that on our webpage, www.sports-casters.com. All right, we have done three things. We've interviewed S.L. Price. We did a mock draft. We interviewed Michael Farber, book club update, Duff McKagan. Now it's time, sadly for you, Don, to do, <laughs> to do pick four. Last week I stayed hot, went three and one. I had the Blackhawks over the Sabres, won that easily six to two. Yeah. Thanks to a really strange drop pass by Billy Leno. <laughs> uh, I won the uh, Ravens plus nine over the Patriots. Exactly like I said, I thought they'd keep it close. I didn't think they'd win. 
That was, of course, 20 to 23. I had the Giants plus three. Uh, Williams helped me out there. Uh, they beat the 49ers 20 to 17. My only loss is I thought that home teams might go 0 and 2 this weekend. They went 1 and 1. Dot, on the other hand, let's see. Well, there's nothing to report in the win category. So let's <laughs> go right on to the losses where he had New England minus 9 over the Ravens. Didn't quite cover. He had San Francisco minus 3 over the Giants. That didn't work out. He had the Washington Capitals over the Penguins. And he had that one in the bag. And somehow the, Pen- the Penguins blew the game late. Lost in overtime 4-3. Wait, three. Wa- Washington blew the game late, you're saying? I had Washington. Yes, Washington blew the game late. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. Malkin scored in overtime. Right, right. 4-3, to three, Pittsburgh won the game. And you had Tom Brady passing for four touchdowns. He had zero. Yeah, what a weird game. Uh, I'm going to try to make it up this week. By the way, <laughs> right now I am 12-6 and six and you are 6-12. and 12, So you got some ground yeah. to make up. All right, let's start this week. Game of the week this week was kind of tough to pick. We weren't going to make it the Pro Bowl or the All-Star game. There wasn't much out there. Yeah, so we got number 22, Michigan, playing number three, Ohio State, Sunday on primetime, or not primetime, but on CBS at 1 o'clock. Uh, give me number three, Ohio State at home. Makes a lot of sense. You know, the number three team is, is playing at home against Michigan. who's kind of a team that's on the rise. They haven't heard much from the Mich- Michigan basketball program in quite a while. I don't think that they're quite ready to win a, a road game against the number three team in the country, although they could. I don't think that this game is going to be a blowout. So I'll take Ohio State, too. All right, my host choice this week is uh, maybe a bit of a layup, maybe a bit of a cop-out pick, but I need it. I'm going to take the Hornets at the Oklahoma City Thunder. That's Wednesday at 8 o'clock. Uh, Oklahoma City is the hottest team in the league in this short season now, and the Hornets are absolutely not so give me Oklahoma City at home. Okay, I'm going to take a basketball game as well for my host choice. I'm going to take the Clippers over the Grizzlies. Uh, the reason I picked this game is because it's on TV and I can watch it, and I like watching uh, my picks. The game's Thursday the 26th at 10.30 on TNT. They play the Grizzlies. The Clippers are at home. I like Blake Griffin a lot, so I'm going to take the Clippers over the Grizz. All right, my worldwide leader pick is the all-Star game this weekend for the, the NHL All-Star game. at Sunday at 4 o'clock. I'm going to take whatever team picks Steve Stamkos. Okay, the Steve Stamkos team. That's right. I like that. My first overall if, pick in if, our draft. If I was going to pick that game, I would pick Team Alfredson. Just because? Just because. It's in Ottawa, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. But uh, I didn't pick that game. Instead... <laughs> My worldwide leader, I picked uh, the last hockey game left in the first half of the season. Well, there's some games tonight, but the last game tomorrow, Wednesday, the 25th at 7.30 on the NBC Network, the Red Wings travel to Montreal to play the Canadians. Montreal is a tough place to play because it seems like they always get the calls, but the Red Wings are a really good team, again, as they always are. You know that for the last 15 years, the Red Wings have opened the playoffs at home? Wow. That means for the last 15 years, they've been no worse than the four seed. Wow. So I'm going to take the Red Wings to beat the Canadians in Montreal. My bold prediction, I'm going to triple down on Steve Stamkos this week and say he is the MVP of the All-Star game. I did a similar thing, but I'm going to go with the Pro Bowl. 
Eli Manning can't make it. I don't know if you heard. He's got to go to the Super Bowl. They replaced him with Cam Newton. Cam Newton seems like a guy uh, yeah. born to play in an all-star game. Sure. There's no blitzing. He can run around like crazy. Nobody likes to hit anybody. Yep. They always rotate the quarterbacks. You know he's going to get some time to play. Probably last, too. You know, you figure Breeze will start or, you know, whatever. So I'm going to pick Cam Newton to be the MVP of the Pro Bowl. Will you? Why not? Just as an aside, will you watch any of the Pro Bowl? I doubt it. It's really the worst all-star game You know, the one thing about it is that I got the two TVs, so I could always turn that TV on and put it on mute. But I just, I could care less about it. It's bad. It's really boring. I know uh, Kerry Burns said that he doesn't like the quarterback competition, but really it's almost more true football than the than the game itself is. There's almost yeah, there's no, no blitzing. There's no game planning. They should just make it fun and play flag football. And, I mean, I say that kind of joking, but make it somehow different because players aren't really playing to play anyway. Or you know what else they could do is they could just pick the teams and then not have the game. <laughs> right. You know, because really right. the only reason anyone cares about this is because – Contracts. and You know, contracts with incentives, like yep. if you make this many Pro Bowls. And I guess there is a winner's and a loser's share. But I read in Rich Eisen's book that the players, they like to win just because usually the winner's share will cover what they spent to bring their – you know, family, or if you're a running back, you might bring your whole offensive line, or maybe they could things have a, like that. Maybe you know, they could have a punt, pass, and kick contest. That'd be fun. And that's the one thing is like the cool thing about other like when you think of the baseball All Star Game, you think about the home, home run, run derby. derby. You yeah. know, the NHL All Star Game. I particularly skills like the skills competition yeah. better, but it just doesn't translate that way in football. I guess you know they don't have any kind of competition like that. It's just you know a game in Hawaii and. It's always really bright, and the uniforms are always really ugly. And they should play a different sport. Like they should have them all come together and play like basketball. Or that'd soccer be cool. Or Madden. Some, yeah, or Madden. Just have a Madden tournament. Right. Instead. Yeah, that'd be pretty neat. Or here's another cool thing they should do. Anyone who goes to the Pro Bowl should be responsible for giving us 20 minutes on a future episode of the Sportscast. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's about it for today. Next week is our second annual. Super Bowl Spectacular show. Uh, I can tell you right now that Kerry J. Byrne is going to be on to give us kind of a statistical look at the Super Bowl, what surprised him, what didn't surprise him. He's, of course, from coldheartedfootballfacts.com, so make sure you check out that. Don't forget, get us, get it, get going. Start reading our book club book of the month at Gino ESPN on Twitter. You can also find his book, The Last Great Game, Duke versus Kentucky in the 2.1 seconds that change basketball. Make sure you check out our Tumblr, sportscasters.tumblr.com. Again, thanks to Duff. Thanks to Michael Faber. Thanks to SL Price. Thank you, the hip. All right.